The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Who hasn't heard the following names? King Arthur, Camelot, Excalibur, the Sword and the Stone, the Wizard Merlin, Lady Guinevere, Sir Lancelot, and the Knights of the Round Table. Actors from Richard Gere to Clive Owen to Charlie Hunnam have played the various characters of the Arthurian world. Disney's had a field day with Arthurian-themed rides and its classic animated film, The Sword and the Stone. J.R.R. Tolkien's epic trilogy, Lord of the Rings, heavily influenced by Arthurian legend. Tolkien even wrote an unfinished poem, The Fall of Arthur, published after his death. Basically, almost every movie or comic book or graphic novel or animated series or television show that deals with armored knights, jousting matches, English castles, powerful kings, medieval dragons and witches and wizards, etc., have been heavily influenced by the legends of King Arthur, including Game of Thrones. Ever been to medieval times? King Arthur. Fan of Monty Python? Tons of sketches based on Arthurian legend. Even the name of Round Table Pizza comes from King Arthur's Tales. I used to daydream about being a badass medieval knight as a kid. So much imaginary fun. Saving the damsel in distress, riding a powerful steed, holding a more powerful magical sword. Maybe I was uh, the one destined to pull it from the stone. I I love medieval-themed film, TV, and literature to this day. But what did I actually know about the basis of all of this before this week? Approximately nada. We're going to do some digging today. Going to find an answer to the question, did any of these people actually exist? Is King Arthur real? The historical accuracy of all these characters has been debated for centuries. If they didn't exist, who made them up and why? We're going to go on a journey that will take us to the origin of jolly old England and lead us through centuries of powerful myth building. We'll travel through tales of sorcery, magic stones, dragons, sex triangles, badass knights, and much more. On this fine Monday, it feels like we here in the cult of the curious could use a little break from the extreme depravity of the KGB gulags, the death, destruction, and cultural polarization of Vietnam and the horrors of Madame Delphine and slavery in 19th century New Orleans. Time to lighten shit up. 
Beyond a British origin tale and the makings of King Arthur and his cast of heroes, monsters, and villains, we'll also take the opportunity to take a closer look at the mythology of dragons and additional info. Wizards, knights, and dragons, oh my, so much wonderful curiosity to explore today on Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sack Nation. Welcome to the Cult of the Curious. I'm Dan Cummins, he who sucks the hardest. Nimrod's Tavern Wench, fourth leg of Bojangles, minion of Lucifina, and harbinger of dark history and darker jokes. And you are listening to Time Suck. Stick around for the Time Sucker updates this week. Got a ton of incredible Vietnam stories to share. Thank you to everyone who sent those in. We couldn't fit, uh, we got so many, we couldn't fit them all in to the, to the biggest Time Sucker update section yet. And thanks again to everyone who serves, everyone who who served in that war in particular. Uh, military conflict, my ass. Time Suck is brought to you today by a new kick-ass knowledge-filled podcast called Science Rules, hosted by none other than the legendary Bill Nye, the science guy, Hail Nimrod. Uh, and this show is for all of you who loved his show as a kid and those of you like me who just respect the hell out of what this dude has done for so many years now. Spread truth, make learning accessible and fun. On Science Rules, Bill Nye takes calls from listeners and answers all their weird, embarrassing, funny, and occasionally more serious questions. Questions like, should we stop eating cheeseburgers to combat climate change? How do we go about putting colonies on Mars? How often should I really be washing my pillowcase? Will I ever be able to upload my brain to a computer? When will sex robots look like the women of Westworld? Okay, I may have made up that last one, but somebody else probably will ask it. Uh, Maybe that somebody will be me. The first episode of Science Rules out now, so you can check it out right after you listen to this and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss additional episodes. Listen to Science Rules wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, thanks again to all the Space Lizards for allowing us to donate $2,200 to the Time Sucker Run charity this month, the Leo Support Foundation, raising money to purchase protective and life-saving equipment for police officers. Link to uh, this charity in today's episode description for anybody who wants to donate additional funds. Uh, thanks also to everyone who has rated and reviewed The Suck anywhere this past week. You spread the suck. And when you spread it, you turn long live the suck into a reality, not just something fun to say. Hey, quick question. Do you guys like summer? Do you like getting outside on a warm, sunny day and absorbing a little vitamin D? And I'm not talking about dick at least this one time when I say that. We got a, we got a new tank top in the store to help you catch some rays in Time Suck style. It's a Danger Brain Design Bella 100% cotton unisex beauty made out of nothing but leftover space shuttle parts that NASA clearly doesn't need since it obviously fakes everything to please its Illuminati overlords. It's a sweet Time Suck SummerSlam design guaranteed to make whoever wears it twice as attractive, uh, three times as intelligent, live for at least a thousand years with at least 900 of those years taking place in a dimension I can't talk to you about right now. So please don't ask any further questions. Hey, Lucifina, if you like the design but want sleeves, okay, we got a t-shirt version available. Get some sleeves on there. I get it. Sun's out, but you're not ready to have the guns out. You like to conceal and carry those bad boys. Fair enough. So check out uh, all that at the store. Another quick question. Do you like stickers? Do you like sticking stickers on places that need stickering? Round two of the Time Suck Street Team. Just launched on the Shopify store. Be one of the first 200 suckers to click on a sticker pack. Do it right now. Pause this episode. Get them for free. Then they're gone. Once you receive those stickers, take them to the streets. Taking it 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 to the streets. 
Take some stickers to the streets. It's like Triple M always wanted. These are not stickers for personal sticker collections. Slap them wherever you think people see them. Snap a pic. Upload it, upload it to your social media account. Use the hashtag spread the suck so we can find it, possibly repost it, give you the proper chance to win free suck swag. When round two comes to an end on July 8th, we'll randomly select a winner who will receive over $100 in Time Suck merch. Might be a million dollars worth, but probably closer to $100. But still, pretty cool. Pretty cool. There'll be a raffle-style drawing with each slap of the sticker increasing your odds of winning, so tagging more photos on social media increases your chances of winning. Good luck. May Lucifina guide your sneaky sticker and ass. Hoping I had fun shows in Spokane this uh, yesterday for another live Ant Hill Kids Suck. Recorded this beforehand onto the Comedy Zone in Jacksonville, Florida, May 30th, 31st, and June 1st, then Omaha, June 7th and 8th, then Raleigh, North Carolina, June 13th, 14th, and 15th. Love that city. Love that club. Going to be Charlie Goodnights. Be the funny bone in Omaha. Check it out. Come, come for a fun time. Uh, ticket info for the entire 2019 Happy Murder stand-up tour. So many more cities. DanCummins.tv. Los Angeles and San Diego tickets on sale now. And Detroit tickets. That's, that's the last date of the year going to be added because I'm taping a new special in Detroit in October. I just don't have the uh, ticket info yet. Tickets are not on sale yet. But we did just lock down that venue. Pumped to record a new special. Video and audio. Now, time to get medieval on your asses. I love this little break from the recent heaviness and darkness. And it, and it only is going to be a little break. So I hope you enjoy it. Because next week, we're going to be talking about one dark motherfucker, Albert Fish. Jesus. So weird and so dark. Uh, let's just say if he and Ed Kemper had lived during the same era and had been prison cellmates, I think Ed Kemper would be the one tapping out. I think he'd be the one asking for a new cellmate because Fish would have creeped even that psychopath out. Mother! Please tell the warden I can't take it, Mother! I do not enjoy listening to this disgusting pervert, mother. My zapples just threw up. But not today. None of that today. Let's get to the legend of King Arthur. If King Arthur and his band of interesting characters did in fact exist, they supposedly existed in the 5th and 6th centuries. A lot of quickly written web articles say that's when the deeds of some battle-hardened legends were first recorded. However, when you do just a bit of digging, you learn that if someone did do the deeds of King Arthur, they weren't recorded when those deeds went down, and they certainly weren't called Arthur. No one named Arthur was mentioned doing anything remotely cool in England before the 9th century. There may have been some dude named Arthur, like, I don't know, beating off in a wheat field, maybe making a fool of himself in an inn. There could have been that Arthur, you know? And let me tell you another thing, Sigawin. Peter's a dirty liar. I always pay for my drinks. It's a misunderstanding. Never passed out once in this inn, let alone two or three times a week. Like that wench accuses. I have my honor. Oh, I've wear myself again. This is unfortunate. It's not bode well for my case. There could have been that Arthur. Could have been some putts like that, but not some badass. The Arthurian and Marlin, or Merlin, Marlin. You know about Marlin the wizard, right? Uh, and Merlin legends as we know them today weren't really created, didn't really get going until the mid-12th century. So why did it take seven centuries for this tale to, to get moving along if Arthur was so legendary? Probably because he is just that. That is what I strongly believe, a, a legend, a, a story told to inspire. And the story may have really gotten going in the mid-12th century because England desperately needed a noble leader for its people to dream about at that time. England had devolved into anarchy, literally in the mid-12th century. 
an 18-year-long fight for the throne ensued when King Henry I died in 1135 CE, left no clear successor to the crown for nearly two decades. For nearly two decades, lawlessness ruled the land during a period that would become known as the Anarchy. A lot of blood was being shed in the name of misguided attempts to take the English throne by a variety of claimants. For years, villagers didn't even know who ruled them from one day to the next. No one was protecting them. Lawlessness abounded. Uh, I'm guessing the story of a noble king who protected his people and unified a nation was very reassuring and comforting. In the 12th century, England was trying to form a new national identity. The land of present-day England had been home to numerous different kingdoms for centuries. It would take some cultural unity to take Britain from being uh, in in the midst of anarchy to becoming a colonial world power. We'll examine some of those early English kingdoms and come to an understanding of the origins of modern England in today's timeline. But first, let's look at the literary basis for the Arthurian legends. The tale of King Arthur begins with a brief 9th century mention of a legendary British fighter, like the best fighter ever. Like, fuck everyone on Game of Thrones. This dude would have made short work of the mountain. Dude would have chopped down the mountain and Jamie Lannister in his prime with one hand while calmly just munching on an apple with the other. The history of the Britons is the modern English name of a book generally attributed to a Welsh monk named Nennius, thought to have been written around 830 CE. And in this book, Arthur makes his first cameo that we know of, what has come down to us throughout the years, what we what we have access to. This is the first time he seems to show up. Chapter 56 of this big, mostly boring as hell uh, book discusses 12 battles fought and won by a dude named Arthur, called a war leader in the, 19th, in the 9th century, excuse me, not a king. When he's first mentioned, not a king, a war leader. That the king would come later. Nennius only provides specific details about two of these 12 battles. The first is the eighth battle when he says, the eighth battle was at the fortress of Gideon, in which Arthur carried the image of Holy Mary, ever virgin, on his shoulders, and the pagans were put to flight on that day. And through the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, and through the power of the Blessed Virgin Mary, his mother, there was great slaughter among them. Uh, interesting. Carried some image around of uh, Mother Mary on his shoulders in battle. I don't, I don't picture Mother Mary loving bloodshed, but okay. Uh, too bad he couldn't have carried around an image of Nimrod. Now that's, that's, Nimrod's ready for battle. Nimrod's scary looking chubacabra ass would have been great for battle. Scared the shit out of some pagans. And then Nennius writes one hell of a gunboat tale regarding the deeds of Arthur during the 12th battle. It's a little, little bit over the top. It says, uh, the 12th battle was on Mount Baden, in which there fell in one day 960 men from one charge by Arthur. And no one struck them down except Arthur himself. And in all the wars, he emerged as victor. Really? 960 dudes. One battle. By himself. In the days before explosives and guns. And tanks. And other advanced weaponry. Get the fuck out of here. Dude was apparently the original Chuck Norris. He he was like Chuck Norris. Wrapped in Steven Seagal. Wrapped in Jason Statham, wrapped in Chris Hemsworth, wrapped in Wesley Snipes, Blade Era, wrapped in Arnold Schwarzenegger, Commando Era, wrapped in every other over-the-top action movie star in the history of cinema. Rambo with a fucking sword. Or or maybe we're just missing details. Maybe he was the only guy to have armor in that battle. Maybe he was fighting nothing but small children. Maybe there was that. Maybe in, in addition to the armor, he had a sword and a horse, and the kids didn't have armor and only had goats to ride around on and just held small sticks to fight with. Or maybe for some reason, none of the enemy soldiers had arms. Maybe he was fighting a weird tribe of completely armless people. Or maybe he had one really strong lance and a a good horse 
And the enemies made the mistake of attacking him in a single file formation for some reason. And he just, just mowed them all down in like one super long charge. I just, I just feel like we're missing crucial details to understand how this one guy in the day of hand-to-hand combat could wipe out almost a thousand dudes in one battle. Anyway, uh, Nennius chronicles a lot of the same history in the history of the Britons that was already covered a century earlier by St. Bede, an English monk historian and scholar who lived in the kingdom of Northrum- North, ah, Northumbria. St. Bede was a prolific writer and many of his works have survived to the present day. And Bede's most well-known work is a history of the Christian church in England. Considered to be one of the most important sources of Anglo-Saxon history in existence, it's believed to have been completed in 731 CE. This book earned St. Bede the title of the father of English history, and Bede wrote of the same battle. He wrote about the same battle on Mount Baden. Never mentions Arthur a single time. Never mentions anyone killing 960 dudes, which I feel like is an important part of that battle's description. He did write of a, of a Celtic Britain leader named Ambrosius Arlanius winning the battle against the Angles at Baden Hills. In 493 CE, it seems that Nennius then, for reasons unknown, may have swapped Ambrosius Arlenius for Arthur. Uh, I guess I guess all the words do start with the letter A. Some historians think that he ended up swapping uh, this character for Arthur's father. A lot of different stories will be, will be written about Arthur. We'll find that out soon. Some mistakenly believe that a 6th century monk in Britain historian named Gildas wrote about the legendary King Arthur sometime around 540 CE, the year after this legendary Arthur supposedly would die in battle. So he would have known Arthur, right? They would have been contemporaries. However, this is not true. Gildas did not, in fact, ever mention Arthur. Gildas did write a historical account of the Britons before and after the arrival of the Saxons. But in his account titled On the Ruin and Conquest of Britain, he never mentions Arthur, although he also covers the Battle of Mount Baden. Most historians do think that battle took place sometime around 516, 517, 518 CE, but Arthur didn't fight in it. Gildas also does not mention some dude who supposedly killed 960 enemy soldiers in a single day of battle. But people did come to believe that Gildas wrote about Arthur because centuries later, uh, Caradoc of uh, Lancarfen, a 12th century Welsh cleric, wrote a book called The Life of Gildas, sometime between 1130 and 1150. And this book is not considered by historians to be historically accurate. So centuries after Gildas wrote about his own life, this other character, this Caradoc, uh, uh, wrote about Gildas' life and then added the character of Arthur. He acted like Gildas did encounter Arthur, but he seems to have just kind of pulled that out of his ass. He wrote stuff like, St. Gildas was the contemporary of Arthur, the king of the whole of Britain, whom he loved exceedingly and whom he always desired to obey. Nevertheless, his 23 brothers constantly rose up against the aforementioned rebellious king, refusing to own him as their lord, but they often routed and drove him from the forest and battlefield. Uh, before I address this little bit of propaganda, 23 brothers? That's, that's a lot of brothers. I don't, I don't even have a vagina, but my vagina hurts just thinking about that. Was some poor woman really pregnant for three out of four seasons for 24 years? And since babies died a lot back then, if she had 24 boys who made it to adulthood, how many didn't make it to adulthood? What, two, three, four? At least. What about girls? Highly unlikely to have 24 straight boys, no girls. I would say she at least had five girls. Six, seven. What about miscarriages? seven, eight, nine. Basically, we're talking about 30, 35 years straight of pregnancy during a time when women died of pregnancy. Or was she cranking out twins and triplets every year or two? That's gotta be it. <sighs> oh, good. Okay, I'm glad we figured this out. Anyway, Caradoc uh, wrote lots of other details about Arthur, like Will, the elder brother, an active warrior and most distinguished soldier, submitted to no king, not even Arthur. He used to harass the latter 
and to provoke the greatest anger between them both. He would often swoop down from Scotland, set up conflagrations, and carry off spoils with victory and renown. In consequence, the king of all Britain, on hearing that the high-spirited youth had done such things and was doing similar things, pursued the victorious and excellent youth, who, as the inhabitants used to assert and hope, was destined to be king. In the hostile pursuit and council of war held on the island of Manau, he killed the young plunderer. After the murder, the victorious Arthur returned, rejoicing greatly that he had overcome his bravest enemy. One brother down, 23 to go, or 22, I guess. A little more details about this mysterious and in all likelihood invented Arthur fella. His legend grows a bit, and then it grows a whole bunch with the writings of a contemporary of Caradoc, uh, this, this guy, Jeffrey. We're going to talk about here in a second. This, this Caradoc guy, though, I mean, it is interesting how he just added so many, he just acted like this guy, Gildas, had totally seen uh, this guy, Arthur, and that they, you know, they were contemporaries when that was not written by Gildas in his own time. But the Arthurian legend... Uh, it really gets going because of another 12th century cleric, a British cleric named Geoffrey of Monmouth. Geoffrey puts Arthur on the map when he writes the history of kings, history of the kings of Britain, sometime around 1136 CE, a book that was considered to be historically accurate until the 16th century. I want you to remember that as we talk about these tales going forward. This is a book considered to be historically accurate. It has the craziest shit written in it. And back then people were like, hey, all right, this sounds reasonable. Uh, how many dragons were there? Okay, all right. Uh, this book, okay. Now considered to be a mix of actual events and a lot of folklore. Geoffrey of Monmouth did so much to introduce the legend of King Arthur to the world. He is now considered the father of Arthurian legend. This book would have been written just before or perhaps a little after Caradoc's book. I, I think it was written after for a reason I'll state in a minute. In the preface to this book, Geoffrey writes, Oftentimes, in turning over in my own mind the many themes that might be subject matter of a book, my thoughts would fall upon the plan of writing the history of the kings of Britain. And in my musings thereupon me seemed it a marvel that, beyond such mention as Gildas and Bede, have made of them in the luminous tractate, not could I find as concerning the kings that had dwelt in Britain before the incarnation of Christ, nor not even as concerning Arthur and the many others that did succeed him after the incarnation. Albeit that their deeds be worthy of praise everlasting, and be as pleasantly rehearsed from memory by word of mouth in the traditions of many peoples as though they were written down. Uh, very clever what he does here. If what he was doing was intentionally writing some Arthurian propaganda. Geoffrey is claiming to write a historically, historically accurate depiction of the kings of Britain and then mention that he's bummed out that a king as great as King Arthur, a man who clearly accomplished deeds worthy of praise, wasn't written about in, in a lot of detail by the historians Gildas and Bede. Yeah, he wasn't mentioned at all by those motherfuckers. I, and I think he wrote this book after Caradoc's book because he references Gildas mentioning Arthur, which never happened. What did happen was that Caradoc referenced Gildas referencing Arthur. I mean, who knows? Maybe there's a source book lost to history that connects all this stuff. Some book that Jeffrey and Caradoc leaned on, some book associating Gildas with Arthur, or, or maybe just Caradoc invented that association. That's what I think. Anyways, so now we have Jeffrey acting as if Arthur's been written about for centuries. It's, yeah, it's common knowledge. Not true unless a whole lot of other books that were written about King Arthur have been lost. I personally do think he's making this shit up uh, just based on campfire tales because Gildas's original account of this battle, the Battle of Baden, it did in fact survive. Geoffrey knew about this book and in that book, we know that Gildas didn't mention Arthur. And if anyone should have mentioned him, it should have been Gildas. To me, that is enough to prove that like, no, this guy, this guy didn't actually exist in his own time. Now that Jeffrey's given Arthur far more historical legitimacy than he deserves in the 12th century, he proceeds to write a bunch of historical accounts 
about the guy that would become the basis for a lot of Arthurian legends. Bunch of short stories about Arthur, Merlin, all, all sorts of people who probably never existed doing this or that. And what he lacks in his historical accuracy, he makes up for in great imagination. Jeffrey, with his inspired writing, turns Arthur from an interesting badass, briefly mentioned by a few other authors, into an inspiring, legendary, mythical figure that we still talk about to this day. With Jeffrey, Arthur is given a armor and a helmet made of gold, adorned with a sign of the Virgin Mary. His weapons become the powerful lands known as Ron, the mighty sword Caliburn. Caliburn sounds pretty mighty. I like that word. It encompasses the word burn. Pretty badass. Makes me think of some sort of fiery weapon used to kill White Walkers in Game of Thrones. But Ron? Like R-O-N. Like fucking, like Ron. Like your friend Ron. This is my powerful lance. Ron. Ah, that shit doesn't hold up. Maybe, maybe that name sounded more powerful back then. I don't feel like Ron translates to the present very well as the awe-inspiring moniker of some powerful death weapon. Stand back! Do not make me attack you with Ron! If Ron does not frighten you, maybe I should grab my mace, Gary. Or perhaps I shall pick up my double axe. Do not make me take my double axe into battle, Nathaniel. What? Did he say he was going to attack us with an axe called Nathaniel? Jeffrey also changes the name of the Battle of Baden Hill to the Battle of the Bath. And he gives Arthur a specific personal enemy to fight in this battle. Ah, some nice story building here he's doing. The Saxon leader, Cheldrick, name changed in later tales to Surtick. The Saxons in Geoffrey's story have taken an oath to Arthur as tributaries and just as quickly have broken it. The great battle is transformed from a defensive stand spoken of by Gildas, Bede, and Nennius into an offensive campaign for the very welfare of Arthur's country and his personal honor, for the glory of England. Uh, although Arthur loses a significant of men in the Battle of the Bath, he wins the day personally killing 470 Saxon swine. And he drives Cheldrick from the field. 470, what a strange number to switch to. <laughs> I love that Jeffrey felt that 960, that's, that's just too much, man. That's an unbelievable number of dudes for one guy to kill in a day's battle. So he went with the more reasonable sum of 470 dudes. No big whoops. Just lancing the fuck out of a couple hundred dudes with Ron. Arthur builds from this victory in Jeffrey's tale and goes on to conquer Europe and subdue Rome. Arthur's making power moves. The history of the rest of Europe's kingdoms and the history of the Roman Empire pretty well documented. Uh, they do not exactly back up these claims. So he's kind of alone saying that he went and just kicked everybody's ass in Europe and Rome. Although he is the greatest king of his time, Jeffrey's Arthur still remains humble and gracious to his friends as attentive to the needs of his subjects. This will remain characteristic of Arthur throughout the development of his legend. His chivalrous nature will inspire the chivalry that will become associated with medieval knights. And what a great tale for English peasants living through the anarchy in 12th century England to look to. Jeffrey is the first author to introduce other characters who will go on to become integral to the later legends of Arthur, Arthur's wife, Guinevere, again, the wizard Merlin, Sir Kay, Sir Bedivere, Sir Gawain, Arthur's father, Uther, Pendragon, Mordred, the nephew and treacherous killer of Arthur. Jeffrey's work, big hit. New York Times bestseller, you know, equivalent. Uh, very, I, just, I have to add that equivalent because one person be like, um, actually, the New York Times uh, did not exist uh, in 12th century England. Just wanted to let you know, just so you're clear, there was no New York Times. Uh, very popular reading this day, spread around, translated in subsequent decades into English and French from Latin by a number of authors and poets such as Robert Wass in 1160, Chrétien de Troyes in 1170, and Robert de Boron in the late 12th century. These authors and many others added more details to Arthur's tale, changing the name of his sword to Excalibur, which I got to say is better than Caliburn and fucking light years ahead of Ron. 
Arthur's quest for the Holy Grail is added. Sir Lancelot suddenly shows up. Arthur is a boy, suddenly pulls the sword Excalibur out of the stone in a future tale. The mythical land and castle of Camelot appears. There's additional magical swords. You know, the legend evolves. Additional writers would continue to add additional details for centuries. Lord Tennyson further popularized the legend through his works beginning in 1832 with the publication of his poem, The Lady of Shalott, continuing with others along the same theme, including the 1859 publication of Idols of the King. Tennyson had long been fascinated by the Arthurian legend, and he revised Arthur to reflect the values of Victorian England. Tennyson's work inspired other Victorian writers and poets to take up the subject matter. Arthurian literature was reborn again in the modern age. Lots of authors did this throughout the centuries. They would bend the tales of King Arthur to reflect the values idealized in their own time. Why was this all done? Again, in short, because people want a hero to believe in. Historically, they want someone from their own land, one of their own tribe, to rise up and give them someone to be inspired by, someone to show them what it looks like to live a noble and virtuous life. I'm lucky that way. I'm lucky that I have my grandpa Ward for that. My my grandpa Ward is my is my life model in many ways, my cue document, my blueprint, my source material. Not everyone is so lucky. Historically, people want to believe that some mythical hero can fight to defend them against any foe. They can feel protected and safe under their leadership. They want someone as noble and fair as they are powerful, someone who will both defend against enemies and also not turn on their own people. Hard to find a leader like that in the ancient world. Hard now. We still want that today. I feel like people in general, people from various political parties, Democrats, Republicans, and more, pretty sad about the current state of affairs in America. And that is not a shot against the Republicans or even Trump specifically. A lot of people I talk to are just disappointed with the whole machine in general. How nice it would be to have some godlike King Arthur to lead and take care of us. No more backbiting, posturing Congress members. No more White House mudslinging and passing the buck. No more, you know, senators seeming to try to just appeal to their to their base as opposed to doing what's right. Just some noble, just, mighty motherfucker making shit great for us all. What a legend. That's a legend that can help unify a nation. No more polarized us versus them culture of liberals versus conservatives and more. Everyone can get behind Arthur, you know, or, or, or some female equivalent. And in the 12th century, with the anarchy, England needed this unification. Think, think about the way, this is a weird analogy, but think about the way Tom Brady has unified the New England Patriots fan base. I know it's a silly example, but 90% of Patriots fans would not give a single fuck about that franchise if you took Tom Brady away from its existence over the past two decades. His consistent, sustained excellence on the field, outside of a few football cheating snafus, a bit of a scandalous romantic beginning with his wife, he's come across as a pretty noble dude. Dude even kind of looks like a knight, what you think of when you think of a knight. Patriots fans will bask in his gridiron glory for decades after his retirement. Their fan base has been energized and united. Now imagine if you believe that someone more handsome than Tom Brady, someone who dominated battlefields like Tom's dominated Super Bowls, someone without any skeletons in his closet to be dug up even in the social media age. Imagine if this dude has established your nation, defended it against all enemies, kicked everyone's ass, was the most likable, just kindest motherfucker in history. That's King Arthur. He was George Washington if George had beaten the British basically single-handedly, said absolutely not to slavery made sure women could vote and own land immediately, and then just carried a magical sword to top it all off. It's King Arthur. He wasn't a real dude. We know that now. But back in the 12th century, the British thought he was a real dude. And this belief helped propel England, gave them so much pride. It helped move them into becoming a world colonial power. And we'll expl- I'll expand on that here in a little bit too. Uh, let's, let's look into the rise of England now in today's time like timeline. Uh, before bouncing out, looking deeper into more aspects of King Arthur's legend, and the legends of those around him, 
right after a word from today's next sponsor. Today's Time Soak is brought to you by Movement Watches. I'm I'm wearing one now. Wearing one right now. Stop what you're doing. Look down at your wrist. Our friends at Movement, MVMT watches have got exactly what you're missing. Sweet ass affordable watch. When I was contacted to see if I was cool with MVMT, with Movement as a sponsor, I replied, hell yes, because I was already wearing a Movement watch. Lindsay has bought me three in the past two years. Great gifts. Now she has one too. Love them. Movement has you covered with tons of quality, clean, all-around good-looking, affordable watches starting at just 95 bucks. With free shipping and free returns, you can order right from your couch, risk-free. So do your wrist and your wallet a favor. Go check out their minimalist designs. After picking up another one, thanks to our sponsor, I now have four. If you see me on stage anytime in the past two years, odds are I was wearing a movement watch. Not one of them costs more than 125 bucks. And not one of them is beat up despite me wearing them often and also occasionally placed them in the driveway, smashing them with a sledgehammer, then setting them on fire with a half gallon of gasoline because that's how I test my watches. The old sledgehammer and burning gasoline special. It's nonsense. Don't do that. But do get one of these watches. I don't do that. I've been rocking my, my blue brown classic lately. Blue face, brown leather strap. Love it. Or my black one today. What's, uh, what's awesome is I can easily order more straps. Silver, link, black leather, tan leather for $40 or less a pop. With over 2 million watches sold worldwide in just the past few years, Movement has solidified themselves as one of the fastest growing watch brands out there. So get 15% off today with free shipping, free returns by going to movement.com slash timesuck. Uh, see why Movement keeps growing. Check out their expanding collection. Go to movement.com. That's mvmt.com slash timesuck. Join the Movement. Link in the episode description. Movement sponsor button on the Timesuck app and website. Now, on to England's origin story in today's Timesuck timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. Let's start way back, like 800,000 years way back. Archaeologists have found evidence of some type of early humans living in England as far as 800,000 years ago. If these early humans established any semblance of a civilization, we don't know about it. Probably not much going on back then other than clubbing, grunting, trying not to freeze to death. Because of the Ice Age especially, highly unlikely there was any kind of civilization back then. The Pleistocene epoch, our last Ice Age, lasted from roughly 2.6 million years ago until about 11,700 years ago. And England isn't believed to have been continuously inhabited until after it ended. Early tribes started using javelins and bows and arrows and living in little groups in England about 10,000 years ago. Tribes likely Germanic in origin. The weather steadily got a little nicer, and by 3800 BCE, civilizations began to arise in the lands of the mythical King Arthur, based on the discovery of timber trackways, a.k.a. ancient roads in England. Between 3100 and 2800 BCE, the Great Cursus of Stonehenge, that big ditch and bank surrounding those mystical rocks, about 300 yards from the stones of Stonehenge, was constructed. Around 2700 BCE, Stonehenge itself was constructed. So clearly, there were people in England with a civilization advanced and organized enough to build a giant monument that still stands today at least 5,000 years ago, likely built by the the British Celtics, Druids, also Germanic in origin, uh, or possibly, as many people on the internet seem to believe, built by aliens. Maybe nefarious reptilian Illuminati members built it like David Icke seems to believe. But let's not go down that wormhole. Uh, When the Bronze Age hit in 2500 BCE, tribal warlords used new weapons that allowed for more sophisticated warfare, which began to lead to bigger kingdoms. The Atlantic Bronze Age from 1300 to 700 BCE saw the rise of trade routes between tribes and minor kingdoms in the lands of present-day Portugal, France, England, Ireland, 
and more Germanic tribes also spread out across Europe and into the British Isles. Many of these tribes, which arose out of early hunter-gatherer communities, have been lumped together in what has been called the Hallstatt culture. Hallstatt? Hallstatt, yeah, not Hallstatt. Hallstatt is German for the place of salt. Hall meant salt to early Celts. The Hallstatt tribes learned to mine salts and other precious metals and accumulate riches for their rulers. Hallstatt burial sites from the 12th century BCE to the 8th century BCE show a lot of commonalities between people all across northern, central, and even eastern Europe, the Iberian Peninsula, modern-day England. Early Celts who arose out of the Hallstatt culture are thought to have begun to colonize and inhabit the British Isles around 500 BCE. Celtic culture started to evolve as early as 1200 BCE in mainland Europe, even though there is obviously some discrepancies here because some people think that some form of Celtic culture built Stonehenge. That's just, that, I guess I should clarify, that is some speculation. No, no definitive proof there. And for modern British Isles inhabitants, the Celts form the basis of modern UK culture. Their legacy remains most prominent in Ireland and Great Britain, where traces of their language and culture still prominent today. Then along came the Romans in 55 BCE, led by none other than Julius Caesar when he first arrived on August 26th of that year. Caesar would then leave, then return again in 54 BCE, then leave again. And then in 43 BCE, the Romans come back to Britain to stay under Emperor Claudius. They conquer numerous Celtic kingdoms, including the Catuvalani and the Iceni kingdoms. By 80 CE, the Romans have an amphitheater and governor's palace in London. They're building roads, strongholds, walls, towns around England, completing almost 8,000 miles worth of roads by 100 CE. Some historians also believe that the first ancestors of England's future Anglo-Saxons come into England at this time. Mercenary uh, Batavian troops based in modern-day Germany brought over by the Romans. More and more Germanic people would migrate to the islands over the following several centuries. Basically, all of the various cultures that arose in the first few centuries were derivative somehow of early Germanic people from northern and western Europe. And most of those people, if you go back a few more thousand years, are believed to have come from Asia and the Middle East. And if you go back thousands of years earlier, most thought to have you know, migrated out of Africa. Pretty funny, really. The history of human civilization has been a constant battle of us versus them. You know, those enemies aren't us. And we want what they have, so we need to kill them. They think different than me. But the truth is, we're all the same meat sack. We've just been split up for a while. In 122 CE, Roman Emperor Hadrian orders the construction of the famous Hadrian's Wall in northern England to try and keep the pesky warriors in Scotland, warriors such as the Picts, a Celtic confederacy of tribes from attacking the Romans. It's completed by 130 CE. The Antonine Wall is built further north a decade later. By 410 CE, after three centuries of constant clashing with various Celtic tribes and various Germanic tribes, such as the Angles and the Saxons, the Romans needing to focus their military energy elsewhere in Europe as their empire begins to fall apart, leave England for good. These Angles and Saxons would then go on to form the beginnings of England's Anglo-Saxon cultural future. The name England can be traced to these early Angles. Their name is thought to be derived from the name of the area these tribes originally inhabited, the Anglia Peninsula. Anglia, also the Latin name of England. The term Anglia is thought to be derived from the term for a fishing hook, since the Angles had a, were a tribe sustained by fishing. Think of angling being synonymous with fishing. England would come to mean land of the fishermen, and English would come to mean the fisherman's language. So cool trivia, right? I love it. Well done. Thanks for that. Three out of five stars. In the fifth century, wake of the Romans leaving, England would begin to be divided up into seven separate primarily Anglo-Saxon kingdoms whom local Celts would battle against Northumbria, Mercia, East Anglia, Essex, Kent, Sussex, and Wessex. 
The tales of King Arthur place him in this period of English history. And most legends pit him against the Anglo-Saxons, fighting on behalf of the Celtic Britons. More on the Britons in just a moment. King Arthur, said to have lived roughly from 460 CE to around 539 or 540 CE, kind of varies a little bit from tale to tale. He was said to be born, this, this really cracks me up. He was said to be born at Tintagel Castle, which is hilarious to me because that castle was not even fucking built until the 13th century. It was built in 1233 CE by Earl Richard, first Earl of Cornwall, who wanted to establish a personal connection with Arthurian legends written by Geoffrey of Monmouth, right? Almost a hundred years earlier, wanted to connect himself to, to Arthur in a quest for power like so many kings would do over several centuries. Earl Richard even had the castle built in the style of earlier castle construction, so it would appear ancient and legit. The ruins are still there today if you want to see the site where King Arthur for sure never had a castle, since no 5th century castle ruins have ever been found there. There's also zero historical record of a castle ever existing there prior to the 13th century. Hilarious to me that this place is now an Arthurian tourist destination. Sometime between 500 and 516 CE, in all likelihood, the Battle of Baden took place. And again, this, this, the years fluctuate because a lot of speculation. This is that famous battle we've spoken so much about where King Arthur killed nearly a thousand dudes by himself. In the legendary version of this battle between Anglo-Saxon aggressors and Celtic Britain defenders, King Arthur, as I mentioned, supposed to have fought on behalf of the Britons. The name Britain derived from the Latin word Britanni, a term invented following the Romans' initial conquest of the island. In English, the terms Britain and British for many centuries denoted only the Celtic Britons and their descendants, most particularly the Welsh, Cornish, and Bretons who were seen as heirs to the ancient British people. That's how it's used to describe Arthur here. So he would have been Celtic, one of the descendants of one group of people who bounced over from mainland Europe's Germanic tribes centuries earlier, now fighting a new group of Germanic tribes. Celtic tribes such as the Britons were united by common speech, customs, and religion. Each tribe was headed by a king, was divided by class into druids, the priests, warrior nobles, and commoners. They'd been in England for centuries by the 6th century. Then the Angles come along from uh, present-day Denmark, and the Saxons come along from present-day Germany and form their own kingdoms with their own language, Old English, bring their own customs and religion, which essentially was the same pagan religion that Norse mythology would evolve out of before they adopted Christianity. The terms British and Britain eventually came to be applied to all inhabitants of the kingdom of Great Britain, including the English, Scottish, and some Northern Irish after a treaty in 1706 unified the kingdom of Scotland with the kingdom of England, Celtic and Anglo-Saxon cultures now united for the most part into one culture. So anyway, so in this early battle, yeah, all these, all these words, you know, change meaning over the years. Anyway, in this early battle, as we learned, King Arthur supposedly fell 960 men. Another battle in the Arthurian timeline is the Battle of Camlin, said to be sometime around 537 CE, maybe 539. This was King Arthur's final battle, will be his final fictional day. Now we move ahead a few hundred years to 830 CE, and that's where the first stories about Arthur begin to be told when Welsh historian Nennius mentions Arthur as king and hero of the Battle of Baden Hill. Between 1095 and 1143 CE, historian William of Malmesbury, a man I did not mention earlier, also mentions Arthur as a war chief of the Celtic Britons in a book called Deeds of the English Kings in 1120. He mainly just quotes Nennius's 9th century depiction. Uh, in the 12th century, the French poet Chrétien de Troyes introduces the legends of the Grail Quest, the character of Lancelot, several other elements of Arthurian legends, as we said earlier, and of course, as we said, Geoffrey of Monmouth and many others greatly add to King Arthur's legend in the 12th century. 
Various other English, German, and French authors, especially a lot of French authors, will add more to King Arthur's legend over the subsequent centuries. In 1154 CE, the anarchy ends when King Henry II takes the throne and attaches himself to the Arthurian legend. Some historians saying he searched for King Arthur's tomb. Others say he claimed to have discovered King Arthur's tomb and then also recovered Excalibur. So he must be the one true king. By 1160, things have stabilized. Things are improving again in England. The nation is unified under his rule. He actually ruled part of present-day France too, but let's not complicate this suck even further with the cultural and royal blood connection between England and parts of France. King Henry's son and subsequent English ruler, Richard I, a.k.a. Richard the Lionheart, would also associate himself with King Arthur. Some say he searched for King Arthur's tomb, as his father had done. Others say his father gave him Excalibur. Either way, the continued association with King Arthur cements the mythology into English culture forever, and generations of kings will do the same. Claim you are descended from Arthur, and immediately you give your rule a noble and magical heir. In 1469 CE, Sir Thomas Mallory, an English knight during the War of the Roses, composes the whole book of King Arthur and his noble knights of the Round Table in 1469, again, while imprisoned, and is published after his death in 1485 under the wrong name, initially, actually, Les Mortes d'Arthur, which was actually the title of the last chapter in French for the death of Arthur. This book became the definitive 15th century version of Arthurian legend. It's passed around a whole bunch. Then, of course, many other authors add further to the legend, authors like Lord Tennyson. Basically, Arthurian tales have become their own genre. Think of it like Dracula. Who is Dracula? He's a vampire. But what is Dracula's exact story? He doesn't have an exact story. He has qualities. He has some identifying characteristics, but many of the specifics are very malleable. Tons of authors have written about him, as we talked about in that Vlad and Paler suck a long time ago. Long before Bram Stoker wrote about Dracula in 1897, Germanic monks were writing about a Dracula-like vampiric character who had evolved out of propaganda written about Vlad the Impaler by people scared of Vlad the Impaler. Centuries before Bram Stoker, Romanian folklore had tales of the Strigoi, troubled vampiric spirits that became part of Dracula's modern mythology. It's like that with King Arthur too, and his band of Camelot wizards and warriors. The story of Arthur is legend stacked upon legend, folklore presented as fact by one English king after another, bending the tales to strengthen their claims to the throne. If, if they were descended from Arthur, they were descended from a man who is more God than king. They were the rightful heir to Excalibur and therefore the rightful heir to all of England. Okay, so I think we have the basics of how the legend started down, down pretty well now why they started, why they are important to English identity. Why are we conquering and colonizing the world? Why, because we are the most noble motherfuckers to have ever lived. We are descended from King Arthur, the first truly noble king in the world, and his blue blood runs through our veins. Okay, so let's get out of this timeline, have some fun with more details of Arthurian folklore, right after a word from today's final sponsor. Today's Time Suck is brought to you by Lisa. Love Lisa. Love Lisa. Had Lisa mattress for almost two years now, and that mattress holds up. The brand is as awesome as ever. So lucky to have kick-ass sponsors. Lisa believes that a bed is more than just a place to sleep. It's a place for relaxation and rest. And they believe that everybody has the right to quality rest. That's why they make two awesome mattresses plus accessories and bases to give your body the deep rest it needs. Did you know that King Arthur slept on a Lisa mattress? I'm pretty sure... Jeffrey of Monmouth talked about that. Merlin the Wizard actually made the first Lisa mattress, and it's been magical ever since. The all-foam Lisa mattress is new and improved, featuring cooling LSA 200 foam for enhanced pressure relief for side sleepers. 
Their Sapira mattress, their hybrid mattress, is the perfect combination of foam and spring for pressure relief and edge-to-edge support. Lisa still donates one mattress for every 10 they sell to organizations that work in causes like foster care prevention, Hail Nimrod. To date, they've donated more than 32,000 mattresses through more than 1,000 nonprofits. Two years of my Lisa mattress still hasn't broken down. Two years of sleep, two years of Penny Pooper and Ginger Bell, my little fur baby's treating like a wrestling ring. Their battles are intense. Two years of putting it to the test, doing, you know, some other stuff. Putting, putting my wife to the test. And so, hey, anyway, hey, Lucifina, hey, so get your Lisa mattress today. Get 15% off your entire order at lisa.com slash timesuck. Use the promo code timesuck. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash timesuck, promo code timesuck. Link in the episode description, button in the sponsor section of the timesuck app. Now, let's get to the details I was speaking of after bouncing out of today's timesuck timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. All right, Meat Sacks, I'd like to introduce my buddy Merlin to you. He's a wizard. Don't piss him off. His dad is a demon. Yep. Uh, most of the Arthurian stories have Merlin being born out of the union of a princess and a demon. An incubus, to be exact. A demon with a human peen of some kind. A, a com- a compatible with a human vagina, at the very least. Some kind of spermish substance that can impregnate human women. Or maybe they just come magic. They, they don't get into a lot of those specifics. And our resident in-house demon eradicator, Woody, oh man, Woody wishes the world was just plumb full of incubuses. Oh boy, how he, I sure do wish there's a whole heap of incubuses. Maybe if there's a whole lot more incubuses, I, I wouldn't be sitting on a warehouse full of Woody's paranormal rape repellent, losing my skinny wooden ass. How am I supposed to make a mint off of paranormal poop shoot protectors if there's not enough demons out there with the right naughty bits to create a demand for my supply? That's just basic economics. <laughs> oh, well, I got to run now. Hey, I got to go check on Mr. Charles Gutman. I had him working a little side hustle for me selling knockoff Rolexes downtown while I finish up my rehab. Whee! Ah, best luck, Woody. Be careful out there. Worry about that strange little fella. I've come to care about uh, him more than I expected I would. Anyway, the Merlin story first came about in the 12th century CE via Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain. The Merlin figure was based on two older mythological characters that merged into a Merlin that we recognize today. The name Merlin comes from the Welsh Merdin, the name of the bard, who was one of the chief sources for the later legendary figure. Geoffrey of Monmouth Latinized the name to Merlinus in his works. Uh, Medievalist historian Gaston Paris suggests that Geoffrey chose Merlinus rather than the more proper Latin translation of Merdinus because the Norman word for feces was murde, and he wanted to avoid that association. It's a good call. Tough to root for a magician whose name sounds like shit. Are you ready to be amazed? Welcome to the stage, the great and powerful illusionist, Master Turdicus. What? What did he just say? Later translations, Merlinus would be shortened to Merlin. According to Geoffrey of Monmouth's imagination, Merlin's semi-divine demon birth gave him magical powers, as you would expect. His most famous power is his ability to see into the future. Many of the Arthurian tales would play on his psychic powers, but psychic powers were not his only supernatural gifts. In one story about the birth of Arthur, Merlin paves the way for the birth of Arthur through some dirty wizard trickery. Check out this nonsense. Arthur's father, Uther Pendragon, a king, falls in love with Igrin, 
or Egrain, the wife of Duke Gorlois of Cornwall, or Hole of Tintagel Castle, depending on who was telling the tale. And Uther, <laughs> these fucking names are so dumb, by the way. <laughs> I'm sure they were good at the time. Some names do not hold up. I apologize if we have a lot of Uther Pendragons out there and a lot of Egrens and Gorlois. Fuck. Why would, oh my, can you imagine naming a kid like that today? These are my, these are my children. We have Uther and Igraine and Tintagel. What? Fucking get your stupid kids out of my house. Uther asked Merlin to help him figure out a way to impregnate Igraine. Knows he can't just barge into the castle and take her by force, uh, force, which he obviously has thought about because the story includes him discussing that there's only one entrance to Duke, uh, Duke Gorloy's castle and that Duke's men were too strong for him to easily sack his fortress. So Pendragon turns to Merlin and Merlin shapeshifts, transforms Uther, also written as <laughs> Ulmud. That's even dumber. I don't like the name Uther. Let's change it. Sexy it up a little bit. Ooh, how about, how about Ulmud? Do you like Ulmud? Do you want to be called Ulmud? Yeah, yes, I do like that. Uh, yeah, written as, uh, into Igraine's husband. So essentially, Uther becomes his enemy. <laughs> walks, or, you know, walks right into the castle and basically rapes his enemy's wife, impregnating her with his royal seat, and then he walks fuck out. And this is why Arthur is referred to as a bastard in many stories. Part of the reason. Makes him more likable, I guess. He's Jon Snow. He's Jon Snow. The more I learn about all this, by the way, the more obvious it is how the Game of Thrones saga also heavily influenced by Arthurian legend. Interesting how Arthur's dad being pretty rapey wasn't real problematic for, for people back in the day when they were hearing these stories. A lot of old myths, if you really look at them. A lot of pretty rapey old myths out there. No wonder sexual assault, still a prevalent crime today. We, we gave it a pass on some level for centuries. Merlin was introduced into the service of King Pendragon well before the birth of Arthur in another epic tale, this one involving dragons. This story is actually Geoffrey of Monmouth's attempt at the origin of Britain's story. The people of Merlin's time were a bit, bit backwoodsy. They had a pretty strong pagan streak in them that included a fair amount of human sacrifice. In one story, they were actually searching for a bastard child to kill and place under the foundation of a tower the king was building to keep it from falling down. Uh-huh. Because, you know, that's the best way to strengthen your foundation is to put some kid bones in there. And sadly, a lot of this shit is based on truth, which, which reminds me of the Aztecs suck. A bunch of meat sacks at one time thought it was totally reasonable to kill an innocent child and bury their body in the foundation of a castle tower. The gods demand it. The more I come across ancient religions, the better I feel about the historical Christian atrocities committed, by the way. A lot of people died in the name of Christianity. However, many pre-Christian religions arguably much more brutal and much more violent. In one version of this story, it's the bastard child's blood that is needed to be mixed into the mortar to keep the tower from crumbling. Can you imagine a contractor showing up to do some wet work at your home and you find them just mixing kid blood? <laughs> Into the poor. What the fuck? What are you doing? Why? What, do you want your driveway to crumble or not? Two parts mortar mix, one part kid blood. <laughs> Come on. Everybody knows that. They teach, they teach us that in the union. Upon hearing about the child sacrifice, Merlin is able to talk the king out of it, but not for some noble reason. He just didn't think kid bones would help the foundation. He, he thought they had a dragon problem they needed to handle. Merlin told the king and his men that beneath the foundation of the tower would be a pool. And in that pool would be two stone containers. After the men laughed at Merlin, <laughs> all right, dragon, yeah, right, we need some kid bones. Everyone knows. Uh, the men dug. Sure enough, there was a pool. After draining the pool, they found the containers. Turns out to be dragon eggs. Two dragon eggs, one red, one white. And then the dragons would, would take to the skies and fight each other. They, they, I don't know. They grew up fucking super fast, I guess. Like a meat, they grew up immediately. I don't know how that's possible. The white dragon takes the victory. 
But in that moment, Merlin sh- had shown the king he was a seer. Uh, the red and the white colors of the dragons are important. The, the red dragon would represent the Britons, the white dragon, the Saxons. And what the Saxon dragon did defeat the British dragon in this tower story, it also led to Merlin's version of Britain one day vanquishing the Saxons and solidifying Merlin's service to the king. Plus, they can build the tower now free of dragons. Yeah, which is, whew, that's, that's great. So great to have to worry about the dragons now. The king would go to, on to ask Merlin for his advice all the time, including how to make a baby with his enemy's wife without anybody knowing. And if all this sounds crazy, it's because it is. Uh, what I like to think about, again, is how people in the late 12th century were presented this shit as fact. Like, like peasants would listen to stories like these and just walk away thinking, oh, it's a good thing Merlin found those dragon eggs. <laughs> that tower would have surely fallen. Yeah, just as surely as my name is Mildred Donkeyshire. Something else fucking stupid. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm off to buy a witch's potion. Need to get rid of some pesky wood nymphs in my garden. People were dumb as rocks back then. They were dumb as fucking rocks. Ah, oh, the Dark Ages. One of the most timeless and best-known tales of Arthur is the sword and the stone legend that comes from the 12th century French poet Robert de Boron's work, simply titled Merlin. We mentioned Robert before. The story starts right after Arthur's birth. Born of royal blood, Arthur was secretly taken by Merlin to be raised as the bastard child of a loyal ally to King Uther, or Uther Pendragon, a man named Sir Ector. At Sir Ector's castle, no one, including Sir Ector, knew the boy's real identity, the son of the king, and his enemy's wife. Thought to be illegitimate, the boy grew up being looked down upon and teased by his adoptive parents, his stepbrother, Sir Kay, and his friends. Man, there's a couple of dicks for parents. <laughs> You're not even our real kid. <laughs> ah, sucks for you. Uh, Arthur grew up ashamed of his birth, unaware he was a prince. Meanwhile, Arthur's real father was sick, like really sick. He died just a few months after giving Arthur up. No one knew Arthur was the king's son, so the kingdom fell into disarray without an heir to lead them. In this chaos, very reminiscent, I might add, of the real 12th century situation occurring a half century before this tale was written, the anarchy, rival lords and dukes debated which amongst them was most fit to lead England. And again, this parallels what happened during the real anarchy. With no answer in sight, the nobles of the time called upon Merlin to help them figure it all out. Merlin, the only man aware of baby Arthur's lineage, created a solution. Merlin brought forth a large stone, as one does. I must have bought it at kind of a magic stone quarry place and placed a heavy anvil on the stone in a churchyard in the Westminster region of London. Inside the anvil is, you guessed it, a sword. The inscription on the blade reads, Whoso pulleth out this sword from this stone is rightwise king born of all England. Merlin revealed the magical properties of the sword explaining that only the most qualified men in all of England would be able to pull the sword from the anvil and claim the throne. Nobles from around the region came to give it a try. No one, not even the strongest nobles, could, could do it. The sword eventually was nearly forgotten. No king was crowned. And subsequently, England sunk further into anarchy and disarray, and people were pretty irritated with Merlin for adding this useless fucking uh, sword stone situation to their problems. As Arthur grew, Merlin introduced himself to the boy. The two began to meet after Arthur would finish his chores around Sir Ector's castle. They became fast friends as old, weird male loners and unrelated children often do. Nothing to be alarmed about. Merlin became the boy's tutor. Merlin's teachings included many subjects, but his major emphasis was in knowledge over brute force. Hail Nimrod! Uh, Arthur in this tale is described as a scrawny lad, scarcely capable of lifting a sword from a sheath. But Merlin saw the potential of the future king. He thought Arthur would one day be wise and honorable enough to unite Britain and save the nation from its current level of horseshit. He saw greatness in the boy. And since he was psychic, he knew what he was talking about. Then one day when Arthur's 15, the wizard brings the boy to Westminster. Besides being a great wizard, he was also an excellent promoter. He assembles an anxious crowd to witness the boy's attempt at pulling the sword from the anvil. Merlin's stepbrother, Sir Kay, also makes the journey. 
Bigger and stronger than Arthur, Sir Kay can't even budge the sword. The crowd's not surprised. You know, they, they remembered a bunch of buff adults who couldn't move it either. When it's Arthur's turn, the crowd goes fucking ballistic. When this scrawny son of a bitch does what no one else could do and just pulls the magic iron blade right out of its stony resting place, just yeah, yeah, yeah. For he's a jolly good fella. For he's a jolly good fella. For he's a jolly good fella. Go kill some dragons. You know, something like that. That's one version of this tale. Story ends up being retold in several ways. One of the most popular being a situation where Arthur is supposed to bring Kay's sword to a tournament but forgets. So the 15-year-old Arthur goes on the hunt to replace it, sees a sword in the stone, pulls it out with ease, not even realizing what magical deed he's just done. And then when Arthur gives that sword to Kay in this version, he notices it has an inscription that basically says he's won the fucking lottery and is now the king of England. No one believes that a teenage boy had done the deed that no one before him could do, and they make him do it again. He does. The people are blown away. He's crowned king by St. Dubricius. Uh, a big part of Arthur's legend is this sword, this magic sword Excalibur. The sword of the stone in some of the stories is Excalibur. In others, uh, it's a different weapon. And these other tales lead us to the Lady of the Lake part of the mythology. In some tales, local leaders not happy about Arthur pulling the stone, you know, pull, pulling the sword from the stone. They don't, they don't want him to lead, right? They're, they're, they're wanting to lead themselves. They don't like the fact that they may have to bend their knee to some 15-year-old bastard. They form an angry mob to rebel against his lead, against his rule. In these tales, Merlin helps the young kid escape the mobs, brings him to a magical lake where the lady of the lake lives beneath the waves. Incidentally, Merlin said to have had a sexual relationship with the lady of the lake, and in some stories, she's his sister. So there's that. Two very different stories. Or are they? Sister fucking not frowned upon back then like it is now. But anywho, in these tales... When Arthur and Merlin arrive, the Lady of the Lake basically just reaches up from beneath the water, hands Arthur the magical uh, magical sword Excalibur. When given the magic blade, he's told he will always defeat his opponents when he uses it. He's also told that as long as he wears the blade scabbard and sheath, he will be invincible. And both of these prophecies uh, become true. Not a bad gift. Not a bad gift. You know, I gotta, I gotta say, my birthday was last week. And while I do love my wife, Lindsay, and I love my kids, Kyler Monroe, not not one of those motherfuckers got me anything even close to as cool as that. Not close to as cool as a sword that will kill anyone and a sheath that will make me immortal. And, which, and that's really frustrating to me because those are the things, I, th that's all I've literally ever wanted. Like, what the fuck? It's like, it's like they don't even care. Every year, for so many years now, I ask the same question. Can you please just give me a fucking sword that will kill everyone and also a matching sheath that will allow no one to kill me. Is that really such a big deal? You cheap assholes. And I slam the door to my room and I sob until I cry myself to sleep. That's, that's every May 16th for me. It's crying myself to sleep knowing that the next day I'm not going to get anything that I want. Anyway, Arthur gets the coolest gifts ever. Ugh. Which I got to say helps me understand how he killed 960 dudes in one battle. Okay. All right. Now I get it. There are lots and lots of stories about the Lady of the Lake and legends, and in most of them, she seems to have different names, relationships, and powers. In one of the legends, she's said to have had stolen Sir Lancelot when he was a child, also cured his madness later in life. She is also the cause of Merlin's death in many of the stories. She, she's complicated. She's nuanced. Hey, Lucifina. King Arthur, or Arthur Pendragon, as he's also known, of course, the main focus of the Arthurian legends, and his story and Merlin's story merge and bend over the centuries. While various details about Arthur's deeds would change over the years, certain traits about King Arthur would remain pretty consistent. He's always brave, just, and wise. Powerful sense of honor, duty, loves England, loves its people. These traits, of course, become a source of great national pride for the English. But he wasn't perfect. He did have weaknesses. And his major weakness was his love for Guinevere. The marriage of Arthur and Guinevere is warned against by Merlin. 
from the very beginning. Merlin told his young friend that she was not wholesome enough to be his bride. And Merlin would be right. Guinevere would go on to have a long affair with Arthur's favorite knight, Sir Lancelot. And this unfortunate trait of Guinevere's, this unfaithfulness, would go on to be retold by various authors and artists and bards and musicians, uh, just like, you know, Arthur's story would change. Actually, the American 20th century poets, DJ Quick, AMG, Eze, would join Play a Ham and Tweed Cadillac, a.k.a. Penthouse Players Click, and release a song about Guinevere on their 1992 highly influential hip-hop album, Paid the Cost, called Trust No Bitch. Uh, <laughs> kidding. All that, all that info was real, though. Except that song that didn't have shit to do with Guinevere. I, I just am happy that I could, I could throw out a reference to Penthouse Players Click. I, I wore that CD out in 1994. Gwen is the daughter of King Leo de Grance, And upon their marriage, Arthur's new father-in-law gives him a dowry of 100 knights and the round table the knights would sit at. Uh, sit upon. Or sit, sit around. There we go. Nice. The round table. The round table has a nice ring to it. Good thing that table wasn't rectangular. That would have kind of ruined things. Knights of the rectangular table. Doesn't, doesn't roll off the tongue the same way. Knights of the rectangular picnic table. Knights of the fold-up squarish poker table. Round. Round, definitely the best best shape. Uh, poor Guinevere. She's really not much of a developed character. Why? Because English society in the 12th century was incredibly patriarchal and was in just about every other part of the world at that time. And male readers and authors didn't really give a shit about showing any complexity with their female characters. Even Lady of the Lake, I, I said nuance earlier, not really. She was always just kind of mischievous. Jeffrey and other male writers weren't interested in a strong female character. They were interested in a strong male character saving a weak female character. Guinevere really is just a vehicle for Arthur to be brave in the legends. A bit of a foil character, really. We see his strengths because of her weakness. She helped kick off one of my least favorite literary tropes, the damsel in distress waiting to be saved by some knight in shining armor. Fuck that. Strong women only, please. I am not interested in saving anyone. You want to be saved? Save yourself. Hail Safina. Anyway, helpless Guinevere, constantly getting kidnapped, neck deep in danger, you know, fucking his best friend behind Arthur's back, and he keeps calm and carries on throughout it all. Arthur's chivalrous nature and the honor of the knights at the round table in general will influence medieval England greatly. England still knights people today who have brought honor to the realm. But we're not here to talk about new knights. We're here to talk about original knights, some OKs. Gah, that doesn't sound nearly as cool as OG. That's okay. We're here to talk about awesome knights. Some AKs. That doesn't work either. Let's just talk about them. When, after Arthur received Excalibur, he fought in many battles. And like the Lady of the Lake prophesied, he won every one of his battles without injury. The 11 lesser kings who initially refused to bend their knee to him all ended up agreeing. You know what? I'm, hold on. On second thought, we now think that we should follow the young, invincible king. That's probably a better plan than continue to fight someone who, who no one can kill. Arthur went on to set up his royal palace at Camelot, a mythical walled city with a castle. It was said to be surrounded by woodlands and large fields where many tournaments were held and many would camp when the city was full. There's no specifics to the city's size or layout. I mean, it's not a real place. Camelot is made up. Camelot is a major city of Arthur's focus in many of his legends, but actually isn't mentioned until the 13th century. As we just noted, when Arthur married Guinevere, King Leo, uh, whatever, King fucking Leo, stupid name, gives Arthur a giant table as a wedding present. And then Merlin is then sent to help fill the ranks of 150 knights. And apparently, it's a big-ass table. In some legends, Merlin himself creates the table. And in one legend, there are 1,600 seats around it. So no wonder Wizard had to make it. You, you can't pick that up at Ikea. You can't put that together at home. Only a magical table seats 1,600 people. God, I wish I had a wizard making me tables. 
That's, that's what I should ask for for my birthday. Now that I think about it, a good wizard, a good, strong wizard. Next year, I'm going to ask Lindsay and the kids, not for two things, but just for like one, one just good wizard. And then the wizard can make the magic sword and the magic sheath, right? And a cool table. And probably conjure some dragons and gold and probably some sex robots. Why not? And a new family that gives me an undefeatable sword when I fucking ask for it. This plan's really starting to come together. Okay, the Vulgate Cycles, a 13th century telling of the Arthur tale and among the first to mention Camelot, also says that when the knights were assembled, Merlin said to the group, Now on, you must love one another and hold one another as dear as your brothers. For from the love and sweetness of this table where you will be seated, there will be born in your hearts such a great joy and friendship that you will leave your wives and children to be with one another and spend your youth together in nudeness under God and touching one another's glorious muscles and rubbing down of thighs after heated battles and relaxing and doing shoulder massages and sometimes touching nipples in a frolicly fun way and then sometimes just gently stroking one another's cocks on the battlefield to reduce tension from the wars and then putting cocks in mouths and buttholes and, and really enjoying. He didn't say that, but I just feel like there's a lot of homoerotic tones when Merlin comes up. He's hanging out with dudes. You know, just spend a lot of time alone with them. He's trying to talk them out of marrying ladies. He's t- telling a bunch of dudes, just fucking forget about your wives. Just, you know, have fun with each other. Uh, and the names of 150 to 600, 1600 knights will be engraved in each of these chairs. What a great legend, by the way, to inspire unity in your army. If you want to be a good knight, you have to love each other more than your own families. And why are you with each other in the first place? To defend the realm of England, to advance her glory. Long live England. I mean, this shit is fantastic propaganda, like the best. Merlin left one of the chairs open for a great knight at the table that he called the perilous chair. That chair would be filled by only the bravest, most capable knight of them all. And that knight would end up being Sir Galahad, the son of the already famous knight Sir Lancelot. In some legends, Galahad also pulled a sword from the stone. In his case, he was named the strongest knight in the world for it. A lot of, a lot of sto- stones and swords floating around in the story today. Sir Galahad sounds like a real badass, Arthur Light. We're going to talk about him in a moment. First, let's talk about his dad. Arguably the most famous knight of the round table, Sir Lancelot. Sir Lancelot was the first knight of the round table, and he's never failed in gentleness, courtesy, or courage. Lancelot is Arthur's favorite. And in return, Lancelot is totally devoted to King Arthur and never betrays him other than constantly fucking his wife. Like, so much. That's like the only little tiny chink in his armor. That's the only minor tiff between the two is the constant wife fucking. Other than that, devoted besties. When Lancelot is not being led astray by his naughty, dirty peen, he's doing all kinds of noble, cool shit in the legends. Killing bad guys, rescuing other knights, saving damsels, fighting giants, that kind of shit. And he was one of many knights. Sir Gawain, another famous knight of the round table, said to be Arthur's nephew, prominent figure in many of the legends in France. He's generally presented as, as one who has adventures paralleling, but not quite overshadowing Arthur's and Lancelot's adventures. In the English tales, He's also sometimes a star of the show. Gawain is the principal hero of some tales, a great example of courtesy and chivalry. He is uh, Sir Gawain. And uh, there's like one of the stories that Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. There's other Arthurian romances. He's the lead character in. Gawain, sometimes a rival of Sir Lancelot. The accidental death of Gawain's brothers at Sir Lancelot's hands causes Gawain, one of the mightiest warriors at court, to become the bitter enemy of his once great friend. He ends up getting mortally wounded in a fight with Lancelot who it is said lays for two nights weeping at Gawain's tomb. Before his death, Gawain repents his bitterness towards Lancelot and forgives him because the bonds of knighthood are too strong for such a petty squabble. I know we fought, but think about all the times in the battle we were just 
laying cuddled up, spooning together. You were a little spoon. I was a big spoon. Just thinking about not being with our families. There was also uh, Sir uh, Geraint. Sir Geraint, a cool-ass knight who bests a knight known as the Knight of the Sparrowhawk and only lets Sparrowhawk live in one famous tale when Sparrowhawk promises to take his dwarf to Camelot and apologize to one of the queen's maidens for being rude. Uh, seriously, that's that's the story. Uh, this story is a good representation of, of how fucking weird and crazy all these old knight's tales were. Here, here's it in the original, original well, I guess not, a, a version of the original language. This is the story. The knights face each other as the trumpets sound. And these knights he's talking about here are, this is uh, Sir Geraint and the knight of the Sparrowhawk. The knights face each other as the trumpets sound and they rush towards each other. The horse hooves trampling like thunder. They crash together in the middle of the field with a loud roar and the sound of a splintering lance. It is the knight's lance, splintered into 20 pieces. The lance of Sir Geraint was held and pierced the shield of the knight, lifting him out of his saddle, throwing him onto the ground with great force, causing him to roll over and over. The excited crowd calls out, Who is this knight in old armor? Is he Sir Lancelot of the lake? Who is he? As the crowd roars, the knight leaps to his feet and draws his sword, calling out to Geraint, Come down here and face me on foot. I've still got my sword. The crowd cries out, Get off your horse and fight him on foot. Is that really what the crowd cried out? Seems like a little too wordy. You know, Get, go, get off your horse and fight him on foot. Like in unison. Get off your horse and fight him on foot. Sir Geraint leaps down from his horse and draws his sword. With his shield before him, he approaches the knight. Then suddenly they spring together like two wild bulls bashing into each other. Now hacking away at each other with swords until a dust cloud surrounds them and no one can tell who is winning. Geraint grows very angry and the knight withstands all his smashing blows and he smashes away at the knight even harder. The knight begins to weaken and drops his shield a little. Geraint lets loose a blow so heavy upon the knight's shield it knocks it down to the ground. Then Durant hits the knight so hard on top of his helmet, a direct hit on the crown, so the blade cuts straight through and into the bone, which somehow doesn't even kill this guy. With that blow, the knight of the Sparrowhawk falls to his knees. Yeah, I would think so. Catching hold of Durant's legs, Durant snatches the knight's helmet from his head, grabs his hair, pulls his neck forward as if to chop off his head. The knight begs for his life. And Durant agrees to spare him on one condition, if he will tell him his name. The knight responds, my name is Sagadimus of the Moors. Durant says, Sagadimus, you must, you must do one other thing, and then I will let you live. You must promise to take your dwarf and go to Camelot, where the dwarf will apologize to the queen's maiden for his roughness towards her. <laughs> the knight promises to do it, and Durant says, arise, Sagadimus, for I spare thee. Like, uh, what? Oh, okay. Uh, if you're wondering, like, what did the dwarf do? And, and that's not me being derogatory, like talking, like, that's just referred to as the dwarf in this tale. What did the dwarf do to piss off Sir Geraint? Well, earlier that day, he gave Sir Geraint, uh, back at Camelot, a, quote, dirty look. And, okay, that's not all. And he turned some maiden's horse around in a way that caused her to almost fall off her horse. He turned it around somehow, and she didn't, no one cared for it. Then he rode off with Sir Godimus, and Sir, Sir Geraint was fucking pissed. How, how dare that dwarf look at him in a dirty way and almost knock a maiden off a horse by kind of turning it around a bit somehow. So Sir Durant, he fucking, he chased those dirty look-given horse-turning sons of bitches all the way to some knight tournament and got to jousting. That's how seriously these dudes took chivalry. One dirty look from a dwarf. It's like, oh, fucking cut your best friend's knight's head off. 
insanity. And people, again, would read this back, they'd be like, well, oh, sounds reasonable. It's uh, good for him for being chivalrous and uh, defending her honor. This against a naughty dwarf. Uh, another knight is uh, Sir Bedivere. Sir Bedivere was a trusty supporter of King Arthur from the beginning of his reign. One of the first knights to join the Fellowship of the Round Table. He helped Arthur fight the giant of Mont Saint Michael or Mont Saint Michel. Yeah, a giant. This was a giant that ravaged France until confronted by King Arthur. This giant abducted the niece of the King of Brittany. That's giants do. They sneak into places and fucking take ladies. Took her to his cave in the mountains known as Mont Saint Michel and just, I don't know, ate, ate a big old elk leg bone and just gave her weird looks. And this big bastard plundered some nearby villages and spread fear among the locals. Big son of a bitch wore crocodile skin for armor. Fought Arthur with a club that was on fire. Luckily, luckily, Arthur had his trusty invincible sheath. Super handy to have that when you need to kill crocodile skin armor wearing giant. Dungeons and dragons clearly influenced by Arthurian legends. Bedivere ended up with only one hand later in life, just like a certain Game of Thrones knight. Bedivere lost one of his hands in battle but continued being a kick-ass knight. Bedivere was also present at the last battle, the fateful Battle of Camlin. He and Arthur alone survived this battle. He was given the command by Arthur to throw Excalibur back into the lake. After lying twice to Arthur, he finally tossed the precious sword out into the lake, and the hand of the Lady of the Lake came up and retrieved the sword and then sunk back to her watery depths. Why would he do that? Why would he get rid of the coolest shit ever? Well, in one story, the Lady of the Lake told him he had to eventually return it, or Excalibur would eventually bring about the demise of the kingdom. Bummer. It does kind of make sense, though. Like, if Excalibur fell into the wrong hands, I guess that would spell disaster for England, right? Can't, can't risk it. Now let's revisit that badass Sir Galahad. Sir Galahad, again, son of Lancelot. One day, another sword in a stone was seen in a river by Arthur's knights, because this, this, shit, this shit was everywhere back then. And it was said to be, they said that only the world's best knight could pull out this sword. Galahad was led into Arthur's court. He drew the sword out, no problem. It was later on when the grail appeared in a vision at Arthur's court that Galahad was then chosen to be one of the three knights to undertake the quest for the Holy Grail. He was given a white shield with a red cross drawn in blood, right? Just like the Crusading Knights Templar, an order founded around the same time, by the way, that these stories were written in the early 12th century. Also probably not a coincidence. I'm sure the Knights Templars were inspired by the Knights of the Round Table and vice versa in the sense that the authors writing about the Knights of the Round Table were being inspired by the real Knights Templar. It all fits. On board a ship during his quest, Galahad obtained another kick-ass sword, the Sword of David, the sword taken by the biblical David when he beat Goliath. Another magic sword that no one bought me for my fucking birthday! Ah! Galahad would end up finding the Holy Grail. After beholding the Holy Grail, Galahad requested that he die. He'd accomplished the most noble mission any Christian knight ever could, find the Holy Grail. And his work on earth was done. He's granted his wish and ascends straight to heaven. He's given this spiritual shortcut for being the perfect knight. He was perfect in courage, gentleness, courtesy, and chivalry. And immediately, peasants started selling and wearing WWSGD bracelets. What would Sir Galahad do? In this little story, you know, because this story, we still have jackasses digging in Oak Island today, looking for the Holy Grail. Okay, one more. There's a ton of these guys. And honestly, their stories, they get a little redundant. He was fucking chivalrous. I get it. He won some battles. All right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, pissed at Arthur, but they worked it out. Okay. The last night we'll talk about today also related to King Arthur, his stepbrother, Sir Kay. History records Kay as being a very tall man, as shown by his uh, epithet, the tall. He appears in some of the legends as the foremost warrior at the court of King Arthur and apparently had mystical powers and was called one of the three enchanted knights of Britain. And here's why. Here's some uh, an excerpt from one of the old tales. 
Nine nights and nine days his breath lasted underwater. Nine nights and nine days would he be without sleep. A wound from Kay's sword no physician might heal. When it pleased him, he would be as tall as the tallest tree in the forest. When the rain was heaviest, whatever he held in his hand would be dry for a handbreadth, before and behind because of the greatness of his heat. And when his companions were coldest, he would be as fuel for them to light a fire. Man, it was like one of the Avengers. Sound like he had a sword almost as good as Arthur's. Another cool sword. I, don't, I didn't get it. While he didn't have an invincibility sheath, he could hold his breath underwater for a long time, like almost Aquaman long. He didn't need to sleep very much. That's pretty sweet. He could shoot some kind of fire. You know, somehow. I'd, I'd want him on my side for sure in some kind of night fight. Uh, Sir Kay at times had a volatile and cruel nature, but was also one of Arthur's most faithful companions. Well, you know, he's, he's fucking super tall sometimes. He's got fire. He's got a lot of shit he's dealing with. Probably, you know, gets him cranky. Almost done talking about knights. Let's just touch on the Holy Grail a bit more and then the code of chivalry before moving on. One of the most important things Arthurian knight could do was hunt for the Holy Grail, the fabled artifact that usually shows up as the cup that Jesus drank of at the Last Supper, the cup of supposed miraculous power that could provide happiness, eternal youth, or sustenance in infinite abundance. Pretty cool cup. Again, it just kind of reminds me of gifts, you know? I mean, I got a coffee cup for my birthday. You know, Joe Paisley gave me a coffee cup, but not, not a Grail cup, you know what I mean? Just a regular, you know what? It's just a regular parade of disappointment today. Just think about all this stuff. During the, during the late 12th century, French and English poets and troubadours transformed the Arthur legend from a political fable to a tale of chivalric romance. The mysterious Holy Grail, one of the most captivating motifs in all of literature, first appears as part of the Arthurian legend in Chrétien de Troyes, uh, this unfinished poem, Percival, or the story of the Grail. Written at the very end of the 12th century, in one of his passages about the Grail, he writes, a girl came in, fair and comely and beautifully adorned, and between her hands she held a grail. And when she carried the grail in, the hall was suffused by a light so brilliant that the candles lost their brightness, as do the moon or stars when the sun rises. After her came another girl bearing a silver trencher. The girl was made of the finest pure... That grail... Sorry, I said the girl. What? The grail was made of the finest pure gold, and in it were set precious stones of many kinds, the richest and most precious in the earth or the sea. Uh, Chrétien's image of the grail, luminous and otherworldly, became a mystical symbol of all human quests, of the human yearning for something beyond, desirable, and yet unattainable. With that, the Arthur legend entered the true realm of myth. Now for some final notes on chivalry. The hundreds of knights sitting around that magical roundhouse table all swore to live their lives by a code of chivalry, a moral system that rewarded bravery, courtesy, honor, honesty, valor, loyalty, gallantry towards women. The chivalrous knight was expected to be a great warrior in battle, but also temper his aggression with a chivalrous side to his nature when not in battle. Chivalry is defined as the combination of qualities expected of an ideal knight, especially courage, honor, courtesy, justice, and a readiness to help the weak. And to be chivalrous is defined as courteous and gallant, especially in the context of a man towards a woman. If you're a dude and have a lady and that lady expects you to open doors for her or walk on the side of traffic when you saunter down the sidewalk, as Lindsay does with me, she is expecting you to be chivalrous. Not for everyone, I know, but we like it. The Arthurian code of chivalry was emphasized by oaths and vows that were sworn in the knighthood ceremonies. Later, the code of chivalry was written in the epic poem about Charlemagne called The Song of Roland. Exactly when it was written is not known, but probably in the early 12th century, and then it was extremely popular from the 12th century to the 14th century. In the song, the chivalric knights were, here's their qualities, we'll number these out. One, to fear God and maintain his church. Two, to serve the liege lord in valor and faith. Three, to protect the weak and defenseless. Four, 
to give assistance to widows and orphans. See, a lot of the stuff would end up being taken by the Knights Templar. I remember this from that suck. Uh, five, to refrain from the wanton giving of offense. Six, to live by honor and for glory. Seven, to despise pecuniary or monetary reward. Eight, to fight for the welfare of all. Nine, to obey those placed in authority. Ten, to guard the honor of fellow knights. Eleven, to eschew unfairness, meanness, and deceit. Twelve, to keep faith. Thirteen, at all times to speak the truth. Fourteen, to persevere to the end in any enterprise begun. Fifteen, to respect the honor of women. Sixteen, never to refuse a challenge from an equal. Seventeen, never turn your back upon a foe. Eighteen, never run from giants. Nineteen, always fight dragons with magic swords. Twenty, to look at a woman when she is naked leads to certain death. Twenty-one, always touch one's sword instead of one's penis. Twenty-two, always attempt to go number two before a jousting match begins because it takes a long time to get the armor off and then back on again and it's not cool to make everyone wait to watch you lance your foes with the mighty Ron. Okay, I made up 18 to 22, but the others were real. At the end of most of the legends, sadly, Arthur and all of his knights will die, but they die for the most part with honor and their fictional lives not lived in vain. Their ideals inspire England and a great deal uh, of others and help push England and also other countries like France to become the colonizing powers they do become. Because yeah, these stories are also very popular in France. Now let's talk about Arthur's enemies. From dragons and giants to witches and rival kings and nobles, he battled with the Saxons and the Irish from the north. He also battled with love and nature. His two greatest enemies were actually relatives, Morgan Le Fay and his nemesis, Mordred. Let's talk about Mordred first. Mordred was on a mission to destroy Arthur from early on. Mordred's parents were Arthur's half-sister and Arthur himself. Gotta have a little more incest. It's not going to be a proper medieval royalty story. If you don't have enough incest, Mordred's stepfather is King Lot of Orkney and his half-brothers are the knights Gawain, Agravine, uh, Geharis, and Gareth. <laughs> that last one sounds out of place. All these old medieval names and then like a modern name. We have Gawain, Agravine, uh, Geharis, and Tim, and also Timothy. It was Merlin who saw into the future and warned Arthur that a boy born on May Day would grow up and cause the fall of both Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Upon hearing this, Arthur makes the completely rational choice of decreeing that all boys born on May Day are to be placed on a ship and sent to Europe to find new families. Which is pretty nice, really. A lesser king would have just stomped them the second they popped out of their mother's wombs. But noble Arthur just took them from their families and shipped them off to Europe. Just a, just a ship full of babies that no one wants. Seems reasonable. Unfortunately, the ship was caught in a horrific storm one year and wrecked, killing everybody born on May 1st. Almost. Can you guess who survived? Mordred. That baby could fucking swim. Man, baby Mordred could swim. Gets dumped into the cold Atlantic Ocean during a storm that just took down a whole ship. And he just motored his chubby little baby ass to shore. That's impressive. Michael Phelps descended from Mordred. Again, many people thought these stories were true. I'm sure some people still do. There's probably somebody out there who thinks that the earth is flat, that we never landed on the moon, and that baby Mordred swam his fucking baby ass off. Uh, Mordred was raised away from the court until he was a teenager. Then he came to Camelot and joined the round table. His actual identity was unknown until it was too late. Mordred was instrumental in uncovering the adultery of Guinevere and Lancelot. Tells, tells about it to, talks about it to King Arthur, forced him to sentence the queen to death. When Arthur pursues Lancelot, or in some stories, the Roman Emperor Lucius, 
Mordred seizes the throne and marries Guinevere himself, forcing Arthur to abandon his battles in France and rush back to Britain. The two face off for the final time in the Battle of Camelot, which results in Mordred's death by spear at the hands of Arthur, but not before he mortally wounds his father, who is also his uncle, who is also his king. Ah, I should have held on to that invisibility sheath, Arthur. Arthur's other mortal enemy is Morgan Le Fay. Uh, Morgan Le Fay was Arthur's half-sister. She is normally depicted as a witch and a malicious enemy. Prior to Arthur's marriage to Guinevere, she tricked Arthur into sleeping with their sister, Morgaz, which gave birth, who gave birth to Arthur's son and nephew, Mordred. It's a mean witch trick. Some legends say that Morgan Le Fay was the mother of Mordred herself. I mean, I buy it. You know, a lot of, apparently a lot of sexy half-sisters this guy was thinking about fucking. Morgan was involved in all kinds of conspiracies against Arthur, from killing some of Arthur's best knights and subjects, trying to poison him, and ultimately leading him to his death by stealing the enchanted scabbard of Excalibur, leaving Arthur vulnerable. Oh, okay. That's what happened to the sheath. Damn sexy half-sister took it. Okay, so that's some of his enemies. Let's talk about some of his dragons, or some dragons in general. They weren't named in this story. Especially fun to talk about dragons right now while Game of Thrones is going on. It's on a lot of our minds, you know, after just wrapped up. An integral part of the legends of Arthur come in the form of fire-breathing, four-legged, winged reptiles known to nearly every child on Earth as dragons. They didn't show up with big backstories or even specific names in Arthurian legend, but their presence definitely felt. Again, kind of like Game of Thrones. I can't name any of the dragons in that show. Uh, they don't really show up that much, but, but their presence alters the landscape of the show and the plot and everything. While dragons are mythical creatures, legends about dragons have been recorded by cultures around the world. The Western stories of dragons differ from that of the Eastern legends and that Western dragons breathe fire, have giant wings, generally pretty evil. Eastern dragons, wingless, fireless, and a sign of good fortune for the most part. Dragons are a massive part of the lore of the ancient Britons, Celts, and the Icelandic people, spoken of long before the time of King Arthur. And one famous British legend about a medieval knight named St. George, story goes that a dragon decided to kill all the beautiful women of the land and kidnapped the king's daughter. Oh man, why, what, a, what a dick dragon move. Messed up the Achilles. Why can't you at least, you know, tweak a little bit? Like, I'm going to ban the ugly ones. Oh, please don't, but uh, okay. With the help of an enchanted orange tree, St. George slayed the dragon, rescued the princess. This trope has been repeated throughout the centuries, saving the princess from the dragon. The Celtic peoples revered dragons for their power and wisdom. Many Celtic myths say that dragons had the gift of prophecy and thought they were the guardians of the underworld, symbolized the joining of this world and the next life. So basically upon death, when entering the pearly gates, Celts were met by a snarling monster. That's fun. The Danes also have tons of dragon stories, including the story of a Danish king sending the spirit of a wizard to scout a foreign land to see if it could be invaded. The spirit ghost wizard returns after being scared away by a dragon, an army of snakes and insects, a giant bull, a massive bird, and a mountain, and a mountain giant. Needless to say, the wizard ghost depiction of these four monsters was a bit off-putting. Uh, the off-put Danish king was easily convinced not to invade the country. Who the fuck was writing these stories? Like, if I get sent back in time and stuck there, I want that job. It, it seems pretty easy. It seems like you just got to make up <laughs> just whatever shit you wanted. Right? You could just use that to, to bend things to, to your desires. No, please, king, please. We, we, we should dare not go further north to settle like... And I'm not just saying that because I hate the cold and I, and I have a pretty sweet natural hot spring in my backyard right now and, and the women here are super hot and kind of into me. The real reason we can't move up north with our people is because there is a thousand snow dragons up there. Yes, a thousand. And they can bring uh, more pain than you could ever imagine. They breathe a, a new type of fire. It's an ice fire. It's both ice and fire. 
and they do that to you. And that's and listen, listen to this. They're the least of your problems. The dragons are the least of our concerns. If we head north, there's also the uh, uh, the ice giants. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the ghost wizards, of course, there's, can't forget the ghost wizards. And uh, also, if you're still not thinking about moving there, uh, what about giant snow scorpions? Uh, do, you re- do you reckon we can handle them? They shoot lasers from their eyes. Uh, all of the scorpions are being ridden like horses by three-headed witches with poisonous snakes for tongues. And they can curse you with never-ending diarrhea if they look you in the eye and wink before you could look away. Ah, she winked, ah, and then you feel it. So head north if you want, but <laughs> that's your call. You're the king, but boy, howdy. Gonna be a literal shit show. Ah, if we leave this land of the hot springs and the, and the sexy ladies and whatnot. Uh, no one really knows where the original idea of dragons comes from. So many different types of dragons and so many different mythologies, hard to say. They're important enough to Arthurian legend to have uh, Arthur have his last name be Pendragon, the chief of dragons. Now let's talk about wizards briefly. Electrico. While there's only one Merlin, there's no question that he is the most famous wizard of all time. Others have been labeled as wizards. The Merlin of Japan has to be Abi no Sime. The Japanese legends of Abi no Sime ascribe him a number of supernatural abilities. He would oversee the emperor's spirituality, banish evil spirits, get rid of illnesses. One famous story says he got his power from his mother who happened to be a white fox. So dad, real kinky dude. Doing a little bit of fox fucking. Abi no Sime's story filled with demon slain, magical combat, some serious Jedi master shit. That is kind of weird with all these animal stories. It really does. I know I've joked about it in the past. It's like, were, were we just fucking animals a lot back then? Why do so many of these myths have like one parent who's human and the other parent who's an animal? And it doesn't seem like anybody was like, ugh, what the, what? I mean, if you thought that through, you're like, okay, guess this guy was out fucking foxes for... Uh, the story of Merlin actually helped create more interest in becoming a wizard back with uh, when more people thought this stuff was real. One of these people was a uh, you know, 13th century scholar thought to be a sorcerer, Michael Scott. One of the greatest minds of his time, he's remembered for having an enthusiastic interest in occult subjects and practices as well as more mainstream subjects. Scott was the personal astrologer to the Holy Roman Emperor and was a tutor to the Pope. Probably wasn't, probably wasn't teaching devil shit when he was with the Pope, but maybe, you know, Illuminati do what Illuminati do. Uh, Scott was credited with making successful predictions, curing illnesses, changing the course of a river even, making a rope out of sand. He's even referenced in Dante's Inferno. He ended up getting stuck in the wizard level of hell. Probably a pretty fun level to get stuck in, really. One more wizardish fellow. This guy was the advisor to Queen Elizabeth in the 16th and early 17th centuries. His name was John D. Instead of being called a wizard, usually called a mathematician, astronomer, astrologer, alchemist, occult philosopher. He also advocated for the expansion of England, credited with coining the term the British Empire. While he was a man of science, an expert in navigation, and a promoter of math, he also was super interested in some wizard shit. He spent the last 30 years of his life trying to commune with angels to bring about a pre-apocalypse situation by learning the universal language of creation. He got a little kooky as he got older. And then there would be other people like former suck subject Aleister Crowley, who thought studying the occult would give them wizard-like powers. And uh, yeah, and so that, there's some additional wizards. So it wasn't just Arthur, but you know, I'm sure Arthurian legends inspired other people to have wizard mythology in their own cultures. So now time for some final thoughts. I, I hope you learned way more about Arthurian legend and how it helped shape England, which then shaped the United States and so many other nations. Hope you learned way more than you already knew. Think about how much talk of knights, wizards, dragons, etc. exists in our culture today. A lot of it comes from the tales of King Arthur, Merlin, Knights of the Round Table. 
Uh, in conclusion, was was Arthur real? No, I don't think so. But but some do think he was at least based in part on some real people, like Ambrosius uh, Arlanius, that dude who showed up in the Battle of Baden, as told by Gildas, who actually lived when that battle was fought. One of the greatest figures of Britain towards the end of the Roman Empire in the fourth century was a Celtic prince called Magnus Maximus. That's a fucking great name. That is a solid warrior name, right? Some of the names today's episode pretty dumb, pretty soft. But if you're, you know, if you're some guy like Uther and you got a lance called Ron, get the fuck out of here. Take Ron, go home, you weirdo. But if you show up and you're like, I am Magnus Maximus. Ah, I'm listening. Okay. Yeah, I, you, you have my attention. Many scholars think it's Max that's the basis for Arthur's heroic deeds. Max kicked ass on behalf of Roman Gaul, Britain, Spain, even Northern Africa. Real dude won a ton of battles, even helped knock Emperor Gratian off the throne. He was certainly the most noted military commander in the area of England around the time of King Arthur. Another candidate's a man named Arthno. Arthno was a Celtic prince who lived in Cornwall in the 6th century. A piece of slate was found called the Arthur Stone, discovered in excavations in Tingtagal in 1998. The name Artigano, it's, it's this name. Uh, and they show up in different spellings in two in different, different places. Sometimes it's Arthno, sometimes it's like Artgano. Anyway, Celtic historians have, have said the name could have been related to Arthur somehow, or, or they thought that initially, but then upon more review, no one really seems to think it has anything to do with King Arthur. Basically, there's a lot of theories out there about real people who, who Arthur may have been based on, but they're all pretty flimsy from what, from what I read and what I see. Overall, this folklore seems to be at least 90% just pure fiction. And, and what great fiction it is. Love a good knight, dragon, and wizard tale. Pretty cool to learn how a collection of stories can shape a cultural's or a culture, excuse me, identity. Merlin, Arthur, and others helped take England from the anarchy to the crusades to colonization. Helped fuel the belief that they were the greatest nation on earth because they had the best origin story. They had to go kick some ass. They were the, they were the land of the knights of the round table and King Arthur. Origins, origins matter to a lot of people. Feeling connected to a powerful past is important to many Fuels a desire to reclaim lost glory, even when that glory, as is the case here, never actually existed. In 12th century England, what actually happened centuries before didn't matter. What mattered was what people believed happened. This type of historical revisionism still goes on today. Randomly, I, I think it's part of the reason the United States has refused to apologize for its ugly history of slavery, right? But slavery doesn't fit the narrative of being a kick-ass, just, fair, every man is created equal, one nation under God, USA, USA, we're number one type of mythology. But I digress. No need to extrapolate too much. I just like applying stories that have happened centuries ago to things that are happening now. But let's just, uh, let's look back at what we did learn today and learn something new before we move on to some amazing Time Sucker updates based on experiences in Vietnam with today's top five takeaways. Time Suck Top Five Takeaways. Merlin and Arthur, number one. Merlin and Arthur are the George Washington and Thomas Jefferson of England. That's certainly one thing we should take from this. This is part of the reason the legend is stuck. The British were also the most powerful empire in the world just a few centuries after these legends really got going. Just like in the U.S. and probably most nations, really, we deify our founders and our, and our founding seems to be part of the tribal nature of human DNA. You know, we're number one. We have a magic sword. We have a kick-ass wizard. And you don't have shit. Number two, uh, Ron. Really? Who names a lance Ron? I still keep thinking about that. Number three, we love wizards, magical swords, impossible powers. Just about every culture on earth has had psychics or seers or prophets, shamans or warlocky wizards. Wizards are important. No matter how science-minded and rational we try to become, 
There is something in our very DNA that seems to lead us back to the supernatural. We want to believe. It's what our brain does best. We seek patterns that match the world that we either want to see or want to believe in. As coldly analytical and skeptical as I can be here on Time Suck, I do hope that we as a species never totally lose our belief in magic and folklore. Number four, another takeaway from this suck is once again, the old telephone game has been played a ton. In every historical episode we've ever done, the hardest thing to do is find a cohesive timeline that is actually agreed upon. In the case of the Arthur legends, it's really hard to talk about exactly who and the other characters were because a lot of creative license was taken by a lot of people. Stories tend to change over time, and that is certainly the case with the stories of Arthur. Number five, new information. We've talked about a few swords and stones today that are nothing more than folklore, but there really is an actual sword and a stone in Italy today. And what's fucking crazy is it's been there since the 12th century. Galgano Guidati was born in 1148 in Tuscany. After spending his youth as a wealthy knight in 1180, he decides to follow the words of Jesus and retires as a hermit. He begins to experience visions of the archangel Michael, leading him to God and the 12 apostles on the hill of uh, Mont Sipi, Siepe. In one vision, Michael told Guidati to renounce all of his earthly possessions. He responds that this would be as difficult as splitting a stone and to prove his point, thrusts his sword into a rock. To his surprise, the sword goes through the impenetrable surface as though it was water. Shortly after, an errant horse leads Guidati to the very hilltop that had appeared in his visions where he was moved to plant a cross. Not having any wood handy, he purges his sword again into some rock, just as he had in his vision, and it's, it slides in easily again, and then it remains there embedded until the present day. One year later, Guidati dies in 1185. Pope Lucius III declares him a saint, and the Montesiepi chapel built up around the sword uh, is, or, or is built up around the sword that he put into that stone. Allegedly, countless people have tried to steal this sword. On display at the chapel are the mummified hands of a thief who tried to remove the sword and was, uh, a legend holds, suddenly slaughtered by wild wolves. <laughs> I don't know if that happened. While, while only the hands have survived is unexplained, they do serve as a warning to would-be sword snatchers. They're still there today. I've seen a picture of them. These days, the sword is protected by a, by a little shield as well as the disembodied hands. While the sword was considered fake for years, recent studies examine the sword and the hands and the dating results as well as metal and style of the sword are all consistent with late 1100s, early 1200s. While it is impossible to verify the sword's legendary history and all the details, it does match up with St. Galgano Guidetti's timeline and it does certainly appear to be embedded in this stone. So how weird is all that? Google that if you need to see pictures for yourself of a real life sword in the stone. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The legends of King Arthur have been sucked. Wizards, dragons, swords, and more. Hope you enjoyed a look into the legend. Nice addition to the suck catalog, I think. Big thanks to our space lizards for voting in a topic that I don't think I would have sucked otherwise. I would have never learned all that. Big thanks to the Time Suck team. Thanks to the Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins, High Priestess of the Suck, Harmony Velikamp, Jesse Guardian of Grammar Dobner, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, Time Suck High Priest Alex Dugan, the guys at Elixir, Danger Brain, Access Apparel. Thanks to Heather Knowledge Ninja Rylander for getting us started on the research. Huge thanks to Zach Scriptkeeper Flannery for his immense help on this suck. Next week, we return to darkness. Oh, do we ever. The weird darkness of Albert Fish. Albert Fish is known for being one of the, one of the vilest pedophiles and child serial killers and cannibals of all time. After his capture, he admitted to molesting over 400 children, tortured and killed several others, 
And he was also just a huge pervert in ways you will just have to listen to next week if you have the stomach for it. Just really into BDSM in the most ridiculous ways. He was a small, gentle-looking man who appeared kind and trusting, yet once alone with his victims, a strange monster inside of him was unleashed. A monster so perverse and cruel, his crimes, they don't even seem real. A lot of nervous laughter in this one. because It's just like, what the fuck? What? Wow. He was eventually executed. And based on his strong interest in BDSM extreme masochism, I, th- I think he might have enjoyed getting fried in electric chair. Okay. Excited now to move on to a very special Vietnam edition of the Time Sucker updates. All of today's updates are Vietnam related. Hope you enjoy them as much as I have. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. This first update comes in from Island Ferris, who shares a lot of love and respect for his Vietnam vet grandfather. Uh, he, write, he writes, uh, this one is a long one, so I apologize in advance. And Island says, ooh, Lord Suckington, he who sucks the sweet life nectar from the teat of Nimrod, praise be upon you. I've been sucking with you since I first heard you on BirdCast, and I've always been amazed the way you approach hard topics with such balanced perspective. The Vietnam War being such a polarized topic for some, I wanted to share the story of my grandfather who was a helicopter pilot in the war. And no, he wasn't just your ordinary pilot. My crazy-ass grandpa flew rescue missions in a Huey, which means he would land in the middle of a firefight with only one co-pilot laying cover with a stock M16. Fucking crazy. On one particular mission, he got a call that a group of our guys were pinned down and outnumbered four to one. And even after being told not to go because it would be a suicide mission, he went anyways and didn't make just one trip. He made four successful trips When he went back for his fifth trip, he was shot down when an RPG hit the tail of his helicopter. As he was spiraling towards the ground with his helicopter on fire, he made the split-second decision to jump but couldn't. His chopper was so shot up, he couldn't get his cockpit door open enough to jump. There was a glass portal in the floor near his captain's seat that he threw his camera through so that he then could jump. He survived, spent three days in the jungle alone, crawling towards base with only his sidearm. He He had a broken right leg, and a 7.62 AK-47 round lodged in his left ankle. He took on his second mission he never told anyone about. He never bragged or really ever talked about the war, and the only reason I know this is that at his funeral, a man showed up that my family did not know. He stood up and told us who my grandpa was. That man was one of the men that was saved that day. This guy told this story. He was only 18, and it was only his fourth day in country. Moral of the story is my grandpa was a badass. He did three tours of Nam flying rescue and was shot down four times. I got his portrait tattooed on my arm and then he attached a photo. It's just beautiful. Uh, in 2015, six months before he died, I'm so happy I was able to show it to him and hold his hand hours before he passed away. He retired as Sergeant Major in the U.S. Army, was awarded multiple Purple Hearts, a Silver Star, Distinguished Flying Cross, and many more medals. Thanks for everything you do and for creating the Cult of the Curious Future Space Lizard Island my parents were hippies. Ferris. Wow. Uh, thank you for, share, for sharing that incredible tale. No Arthurian legend here. That's some real shit. Nice reminder that there are, in fact, real heroes out there walking amongst us. Think about that the next time you're annoyed. Some older man is, you know, taking too long crossing the street. That dude that you're annoyed by, that, that nice, sweet-looking grandpa might have been the baddest motherfucker in Nam in 1969. We have no idea what most of the people around us have done. And this guy... This guy who never talked about it was a bona fide war hero. Next up is Matt Baker, who has another tale of how difficult of a war Vietnam really was, what terrible sacrifices were made, and about being lucky enough to have known a kick-ass vet. Matt writes, Hey, Time Suck. 
thought I would share some of the time I got to spend with a favorite customer from my previous job. Mr. Williams was a Marine sergeant who served in Vietnam for over a year and would always talk about how much I looked like a member of his platoon. But he always did so without a smile and always sounded somber when he brought him up. I had the chance one day to ask him, so he told me about going on one of their search and destroy runs with the big guy, guy that looked like me on point. To hear the story told, they came across a boy walking through the jungle who looked ragged and emaciated. Big guy grabbed some of whatever food he had out in his pockets and gave it to the boy, or out of his pockets. The boy, in turn, reached in his bag, pulled out something, closed in both hands, and placed it into big guy's hands and trotted off. It was a grenade with the pin already pulled. It took off both his hands, half his face, and sent shrapnel into his chest, causing big guy to bleed out in the jungle. He told me through tears that the moment defined the conflict for him. As much as he was proud to serve his country and do whatever was asked of him, it was obvious that no matter how much kindness and compassion they could show, they were not wanted or accepted there. It was hard to see a man three times my age choking back tears with talking about regrets from a lifetime ago, but I've always remembered the obviousness of the hardships an entire generation faced welling up in the eyes of a man that had showed me nothing but kindness as much as kindness had cost him. Sorry that's a little wordy, but I heard Mr. Williams passed about four years ago and the suck sure brought up some good memories of him. Thanks for the outlet and prayers for all from a loyal sucker. Holy shit, Matt, man. Thank you. What an intense tale. What a terrible way for someone to die. And I'm so glad that this suck brought back some fond memories of Mr. Williams for you. And man, hopefully he uh, he is resting in peace right now. Another uh, personal Vietnam tale comes to us from a time sucker named Drake, a tale that again illustrates how a war can haunt a man. Drake writes, Greetings, Mr. Cummins, Lord of all that is suck. Wanted to start off by saying the Vietnam War suck was gripping and I'm sad it was only two hours long. You were asking at the end for stories of vets of the war. A close family friend of mine was drafted into the war himself. Sadly, he isn't the greatest with technology, but I wanted to share what I know for that human element. His name is Rich W. I want to respect his privacy, so that's all I can give. He was drafted into service and sent to the jungles with a rifle. He was around 18 to 20 at the time, and sadly, I don't know when he got back. From what my grandpa's told me, he and Rich used to go hunting, camping, and fishing all the time before the war. Rich was an amazing shot, loved the outdoors, very full of life, and a very funny person. When Rich got back, everything was different. He stopped camping for roughly 15 years. The annual trip he and my grandpa started, he no longer continued. After those years, he did start joining the first day of the trip and leaving that evening. It was about a three-hour drive there and three hours back. After a few more years, he invested in a blow-up air mattress and was able to camp again. He vowed never to sleep on the ground again when he got home from Vietnam. Rich was also silent. He didn't make jokes anymore, didn't talk much at all. I honestly couldn't tell you if I'd ever heard more than 50 words out of his mouth in the eight years I attended that camping trip. He would just sit back and listen to everyone else, not to say he was rude. He would always answer and speak with people, but not often on his own accord. The biggest change in him, the one I saw firsthand, was his attitude towards guns. Before the war, he was a hunter. When he got back, and even to this day, he has never touched a single gun. He sold all his hunting rifles and shotguns and will not hunt on camping trips. Rich took the same vow with guns that he took about not sleeping on the ground. The account I saw was someone someone was loading a shotgun to go hunting. They leaned the gun against the car a safe distance away from the camp and walked back for whatever reason. The shotgun began to fall. Rich was next to it. Instead of reaching down and stopping it from falling, he stepped to the side and let it hit the ground. Everyone looked, saw what happened, and just asked if he was okay. No one was mad. They understood why he wouldn't touch it. The only thing I know about him in the war, because he would never talk about it, and this was from my grandpa, was that Rich would have to clear tunnels. I can only imagine the hell that was those tunnel systems and what he had to do. 
I'm sorry there isn't more info I can give. I'd only known Rich for about 10 years before his health kept him from coming around as much. He's a good man. It's sad to hear about the life that was destroyed over in Vietnam. Thank you for your time and thank you for all the great knowledge you share once a week. Have a great day, week, month. Keep on sucking. Hail Lucifina, Drake. Uh, Well, thank you, Drake. And holy shit, man, clearing tunnels. Hell on earth. I can't imagine. Clearly doing what he do or what he had to do uh, took a took an enormous psychological toll on him. You know, I hope I hope he always knew that there were people like me who had enormous respect and gratitude for the sacrifices he made. Don't know if that would have made a difference. I guess you know, you doesn't matter if people appreciate it or not. Some memories, you know, I, I'm I'm sure you just you just can't erase, and they just they just haunt you. Another family badass veteran tale from Jacob Davis, who writes saying, "Suck Master Dan." My grandpa retired from the Marines as a master sergeant, was a badass warrior in Vietnam. He did two tours, one in 67, another year later in 68, and received a Purple Heart. The Viet Cong shot at him with an RPG, and the explosion was so close, a piece of shrapnel about the size of a golf ball went deep into his leg. After he died this past December, my grandma gave me the shrapnel that he kept all those years. I can send you a picture if you want to see it. He didn't speak of his time in Vietnam often, and when he did, it was brief. The few times he did, he spoke about being shot at, ambushed, fighting hand-to-hand, and getting wounded. My dad has my grandpa's uh, K-bar, which was the Marine-issued combat knife, and it is covered in bloodstains. Wow. He never said more because it always brought him to tears. He definitely faced horrors and had to do things I can't imagine. He carried that pain strongly like a true stoic. He was the baddest motherfucker I knew and my father figure. His name was Jackie James Davis. It means a lot to me to see the way you factually talked about the Vietnam War, and it would mean a lot to him. Thank you for the sucking, all the awesome stuff, and hail Nimrod, your fan, Jacob Davis. Well, thank you, Jacob, and rest in peace, Master Sergeant Jackie James Davis. Uh, No need to send that pic, Jacob. The story was enough, man. Insane what people, again, walking amongst us have seen and experienced, have had to do to survive. Thank you for bringing some some recognition to another unsung hero. Uh, Switching it up now for a different perspective on Vietnam, sent in by Ms. Evergreen. She writes, nice work on your Vietnam episode. I'm sure it took a ton of research, but you broke it down well and the timeline always helps. I am teaching in Cambodia right now and this info really helps to put things in context. The recent history of genocide is still deeply felt here. Today, I saw the first elderly monk I've seen since I arrived. I've read that something like half the country's population is under 18. As present as it all is, it's still far beyond my imagination to conceive of the horrors that happen here. To think of what so many people anyone just a couple years older than me lived through and the trauma they must be carrying. It's just astonishing. One thing I was surprised you didn't mention was the link between Agent Orange and its manufacturer, Monsanto Bayer. Uh, legal issues? No, just, you know, it was too hard, too hard to get into. Only fit so much info in, uh, in one of those episodes. But uh, just as in the case of the Khmer Rouge, few, if any of those responsible for Agent Orange have been held accountable for the thousands of brutal deaths. In fact, how many former employees of Monsanto uh, went on to work for the EPA and USDA. Yikes. So in a way, they make Pol Pot and his cadre of lunatics look a bit like caveman in comparison. Sad but true, but hey. Resilience is the most important thing on planet Earth. Khmer food is amazing. People are so kind and friendly, and the land is gorgeous beyond belief. I hope more people in the West can come to be educated about the U.S. secret bombing campaign and how that paved the way for the rise of radical bass awkward KR extremists to take over and eviscerate the population with primitive control tactics and heavy foreign firepower. Dang it. This was supposed to be a quick note. Anyway, I do certainly enjoy your show. Thanks for your hard work. Keep on sucking. Thank you, Ms. Evergreen. Appreciate you letting us know about how the effects of that war obviously still being felt over in that part of the world, being felt in Vietnam and neighboring nations today. 
not just veterans over here that are suffering, a lot of suffering still going on over there because of that conflict. And, and got to do a Pol Pot episode one of these days. So many interesting topics out there, too many to choose from. Uh, next up is Josh Taylor, who shares his father's Vietnam story with us all. Josh writes, Josh, just listened to your Vietnam War episode last night at work and have to say you did a damn good job. You mentioned wanting to hear from Vietnam veterans. I thought I'd chime in with my own father's experience in the war. He was a 21-year-old plumber when he received his draft notice on he and my mom's first year wedding anniversary. Oh, man. Ugh. Upon graduating basic training, he was selected for med- medic school. He was extremely happy about this as he wasn't going to be a grunt like everyone else. Little did he know that medics go out into the field with the infantry. Upon arriving in Vietnam, he became a combat medic. He was stationed out of Kuchi, a city mentioned on your podcast with the 25th Infantry Division, who you also mentioned on your podcast. Over the next three, 30, 366 days, it was a leap year, he got an extra day in Vietnam, he saw extensive combat. He carried a shotgun because the early M16s were so unreliable and the area they were fighting was covered in dense bamboo. Once I became older, me and my dad became hunting buddies, so eventually after a few drinks around the campfire, I'd ask him questions that I'd always been curious about. He never spoke of the war at all until he became older. I once asked him if he thought he would survive the war. He told me there was no doubt in his mind that he was a dead man walking in Vietnam. Jeez, that's intense. I asked him how close he had been physically to other people who were killed. He said men were killed directly to his left and right. He once was in a situation so dire that he actually had to call in artillery on top of their own position. This means that death is imminent and you hope and pray you somehow survive the onslaught of death from above. You read the letter of the soldier talking about going to Hawaii to meet his wife on R&R. My dad being married was given this option as well. They'd fly your spouse to Hawaii and you'd meet them there. He declined, however, due to how many people he'd seen come back to Vietnam after R&R and end up dead in a week or two. Their minds were still on the world and their loved ones and they dropped their guard. My dad is and always will be my hero. It saddens my heart that there were no parades for those courageous boys who didn't even want to go to war. They were drafted, not given sufficient training, sent off to hell itself. And they had to wait 30 years to finally hear people thank them for their service. To this day, the only people I've heard my dad speak of with hatred are LBJ and Jane Fonda. He came home, burned his uniform, didn't talk about it again until his nosy, pesky son, me, started asking questions. Thank you for doing Vietnam veterans justice in this episode of justice they didn't get for years after surviving hell. Keep on sucking, Josh from Texas. Wow, yeah, powerful story, Josh. I'm sad he didn't get a parade either. I mean, your dad and others fought just as bravely as as men did in World War II. They didn't get to pick the context of their war. They were just drafted like millions of other men have been drafted over the years. Glad he made it back. Another grandpa tale now from Caleb Figura. Caleb writes, Dear Mr. Suckmaster 1.0, great leader of the Space Lizard Army, bringer of truth and all things sucky savior of the modern sucker. I absolutely love the Vietnam suck. I grew up with stories from my grandpa Kenny about it. He always told me about how he tried to join the Air Force when they started up the draft to take the easy way out, he always said, but he drug his feet and was drafted as a combat engineer in the Army. A story that always stuck with me and one I think would also be interesting to you took place basically right after he arrived in Vietnam. He had been on patrol in the morning hours looking for mines and other explosives the enemy had possibly dug up and placed on to pass the GIs would normally take. He always mentioned how he would tape his dog tags together so they wouldn't make noise when navigating through the jungle but the clacking of guns and heavy boots tripping over downed trees and other foliage couldn't have been any quieter. They had stopped for a brief rest and started off again when the entire tree line ahead of them lit up. Everyone dropped and returned fire into the wood line and then silence. No birds, no bugs, nothing making noise. He said it was so quiet he could hear his buddy's heartbeat next to him. 
Not a single person was blinking. As fast as it started, it was over. And then he said, and we picked up our shit and moved on. And then he'd laugh. And I remember thinking, what the fuck? When I was 16, sitting in his house, sharing a joint and watching Twilight Zone. Yes, the old bastard still parties. Ha ha. <laughs> anyway, just thought you'd like to read a story I fucking love. Your show. And I'm very proud to be a space leader. Keep on sucking. Give Bojangles a good head scratching for me. Yes, praise Bojangles. And uh, can't imagine someone going through stuff like that, Caleb. I've been in the woods a ton and it's such a place of peace for me. So lucky to never have had to worry about just being lit the fuck up at any second. Again, like I said during the episode, but no wonder there's so much PTSD from that war. Glad he made it back as well. And now a tale from Eric Stoffer, who wants to let everyone know how badass his JROTC assistant army instructor was, Eric writes. Hi, Dan. Absolutely love the show and have been an avid listener since episode one. Oh, wow. Uh, thanks for being a long time listener. I've been to both your, both, I've been to both of your Grand Rapids shows. Absolutely loved it. Looking forward to you returning later this year. Just finished the Vietnam suck. You did an amazing job. It was incredibly entertaining and I learned a thing or two. You asked people to email you if they had experience with fighting or protesting. Well, my old JROTC, Assistant Army Instructor, Sergeant Major, Sergeant Major Adams. He was an amazing man who taught me a lot. He was the first man who taught me to shoot and later coached my marksmanship team to a state championship. On one of these trips, he told us about Vietnam and the one firefight he was involved in that haunted him to the grave. He was patrolling through rice paddies when a sniper bullet struck his rucksack and knocked him to the ground. Gunfire erupted around him and his squad. They stepped into an ambush. They fell back to some wooded area and held their ground in the dense forest. After hours of fighting, he attempted to regroup and make sure his men were okay. One man was MIA. Once they realized he was missing, they began searching the surrounding jungles and known VC hideouts. Hours later, the missing soldier, and this is going to be very graphic, was found tied to a tree with barbed wire and shot multiple times as though he had been used for target practice. His body had been mutilated and desecrated. Sergeant Major Adams blamed himself for his death and suffered from major PTSD. Years after high school, I learned that his mental state had deteriorated rapidly and he was being detained by police for calling in bomb threats to local businesses. He said he was trying to save people from a box of live grenades. Fuck. He died a few years ago and I can only help he was able to forgive himself. I still have an old message from him where he congratulated me on winning my first target shooting competition. Apologies for the long message, but wanted to share that with you and your team. Thanks, Eric Stoffer. Man, thank you, Eric. Whew, good thing to think about when you when you see a homeless vet too, you know? Maybe, maybe not so fast with the lazy bum type thoughts. Maybe they saw some shit that would have fucking completely wrecked your mind as well. I uh, hope he did finally find some peace. So yeah, so uh, rest in peace, Sergeant Major Adams. Another tale of Vietnam service comes in from Jason Scott, who shares his father's story. Jason writes, Dear Sergeant Suck in the Bojangles Army, 3rd Triple M Division, <laughs> Lucifina Company. Thanks to the Vietnam Suck. It's still very personal to a lot of listeners, and I feel like you handled it with a great deal of diplomacy and not too much humor that could have taken away from the reality of it. My dad served in the Army near the end of the conflict in the 82nd Airborne Division, so Vietnam lived in my home for my whole life. He wouldn't shy from talking about it with me, and I learned a lot from his perspective. I don't want to go on too long, but I want to share just a little bit of his hard-earned wisdom. He objected to veterans being called a hero, not, or, excuse me, he objected to veterans being called a hero just for signing up. And he always made a point to remind me that sometimes people weren't brave, saying, son, sometimes they're just stupid and sometimes they are just running to their own grave on purpose. <laughs> he volunteered because he didn't want to suck hind teat in the regular army and got in the 82nd. Dad sounds like fucking Chuck Norris, tough motherfucker. Despite being an impoverished rural kid from the South, he understood some of the political wrangling behind the scenes in Vietnam and knew it was a shit show going in. 
throughout his life, he always said that he knew Kissinger, LBJ, etc., took advantage of the mostly poor soldiers and the war was about freeing up market space at its heart. But he, an ardent patriot, always said that even if all they did was make life a little more tolerable for one Vietnamese kid, it was all worth it. He said that he never felt he was fighting for the president or for Congress, but for the ideals of freedom and democracy, and that any amount of bloodshed was worth it if it meant people could have a chance of freedom. Sadly, Vietnam became what it did, but I know that hard bastards like my old man believed in a greater cause and were willing to lay it all on the line for it. If nothing else comes out of it, I hope the experience in Vietnam serves as a sad reminder of the human cost of advancing political agendas and the lives of our vets can remain a daily reminder of the debt we owe them for their selfless service, even if they are Polish (laughs) or in the Air Force. New listener, that's a callback to some old jokes. Anyhow, thanks for a sobering suck. My dad passed last year and this reminded me of him and I hope some other vets out there know that despite the political fuckery surrounding the surrounding uh, the war, we appreciate all those willing to serve our country no matter what. To our vets, may Lucifina be ever so merciful in her temptations and may Bojangles bite the ass of our enemies. Yours in sucking humble spaces are Jay Scott. Man, thank you, Jay, for such a poignant message. And uh, rest in peace, Mr. Scott. Love the way your dad rationalized his service, Jay. Perfectly. He fought for freedom. Fought for his for his own, you know, notion of freedom and spreading that and didn't care about uh, the politics that surrounded it. Okay, time for two more tales. I told you this is going to be a big one. First, the two comes uh, from Rochelle. Uh, oh, man, Rochelle, you got a tricky-ass name. Stakiti. Okay. Uh, I know you didn't pick it. Rochelle Stakiti, who writes in with a subject line of fuck Vietnam and shares a tale of her father. Rochelle writes, hey, Dan, quick Vietnam story for you. My father was born in 1951 was drafted just days after his 18th birthday in 1969. For years, he had watched numerous other young men in his hometown of Dodge City, Kansas, be sent over for the war, including two of his older brothers. He went off to boot camp in Georgia, or maybe Texas, and said, they would decide who set up the mess hall and who cleaned up the mess hall by lining us all up and having us count off. One, two, etc. He said this was a common practice for breaking up the men who was used for all situations, including deciding who was to be stationed in Germany and who was going to be shipped to Vietnam. His words were, if I had been a two that day, I would have died. He knew many of the men who were the unlucky twos. The regiment those men were a part of was completely obliterated in Vietnam. Not a single one survived. Wow. My father was stationed in Germany for two years and immediately upon getting back to Kansas, enrolled in college to avoid further service. He was one of five young men drafted from Dodge City to make it home alive. I visited Washington, D.C. with him last summer. He had never been, never had the chance to see the Vietnam Memorial before, took the time to find all the names and pay individual respect to all those who he knew who weren't as lucky as he was. Before that trip, he had never talked with me about his army experience. In 27 years of life, all I knew was that he was stationed in Germany during Vietnam. He definitely believes that the military conflict was nothing more than a giant fucked up Hamburger Hill. I've included a picture of my dad at the memorial pointing to a classmate's name as well as a picture of the memorial as a whole and one more of him smiling to lighten up the mood. Your loyal space is Rochelle. Well, thank you, Rochelle. Thank you for the pictures. Uh, they are wonderful. Crazy to think how cl- close he came to not making a home alive. You know, just just random chance. Crazy to think how how close you came to not existing. Glad you, you both made it to that memorial. I have seen it, and it is definitely awe-inspiring, and that's for someone who has no personal connection to it. Last message. Another perspective on Vietnam. Veteran Tara Snyder sent in a message titled, Shot Down During a Ceasefire, South Vietnamese South Vietnamese Pilot. This is kind of a nice one to end on. Tara writes, 
Dear Suck Master Flex, I just finished the Vietnam War suck. And as a bit of a history in Vietnam War buff, I loved it. I wanted to write you, however, to share some perspective from a South Vietnamese Air Force pilot. In 2002, I enlisted in the Army National Guard, was assigned to an aviation unit. At that time, there were a, yeah, thank you for your service. At that time, there were a small handful of Vietnam-era pilots still floating around the flight facility. One of those pilots was a South Vietnamese man named Chief Warrant Officer Chu Lee. I took advantage of Mr. Lee's friendliness and openness several times. During one of my conversations with Mr. Lee, I asked, how many times were you shot down? He casually said, only four times. That's, which is fucking crazy. That's four times got shot down. Then continue by stating how the first time he was shot down was during the ceasefire in 1972. His casual demeanor to the question still stuns me to this day. But I'm not writing you just to share that story. It, actually, it is actually his story of how he came to the U.S. permanently that I want to share. He flew UH-1 or Huey helicopters throughout the war. He was flying his helicopter on a mission when it came across the radio that Saigon had fallen at the South was surrendering. He suddenly found himself without a home or a country. He landed his helicopter at his airbase at Sok Trang, located 50 miles off the coast. He knew if he stayed in Vietnam, he would be treated as a traitor and either killed or sent to re-education camp. He knew the U.S. Navy's 7th Fleet was somewhere in the South China Sea, but there was no guarantee he could make the flight with the amount of fuel on board. Seeing no other option, he turned on his helicopter prepared to take off. At that moment, his helicopter was flooded with other people wanting to escape the communist regime. He recalled that when he took off, his helicopter was alerting him that it had too much weight on board, but he ignored the lights. He saw no other option for himself and headed out into the abyss. With only 20 minutes of fuel left, he was able to make contact with an aircraft carrier who guided him to a safe landing. As soon as Mr. Lee landed and everyone was off the aircraft, the carrier ship crew pushed the helicopter into the ocean to make room for the next helicopter trying to land. There are still hundreds of aircrafts sitting at the bottom of the ocean due to the mass exodus of people from South Vietnam. Here is a link to a longer interview. Okay, thank you for sharing that. In total, nearly 138,000 refugees fled Vietnam to seek refuge in the U.S. and other countries around the world. I have an entire 20-page paper somewhere regarding the U.S. handling of the Vietnamese refugees, but I won't bore you with those details. Details. Uh, also, if you're ever curious to read a first-hand account of what it was like to grow up in South Vietnam, I recommend reading the book, A Thousand Falling, The True Story of a Vietnamese Family Torn Apart by War, Communism, and the CIA, written by Young Kroll. Ms. Kroll's father supported the North. Her mother supported the South. Ms. Kroll would marry a U.S. Air Force pilot, moved to the U.S. prior to the end of the war. She would work alongside the CIA and FBI to gain intelligence through her father, who became the communist Vietnam's ambassador to the Soviet Union, or excuse me, in the Soviet Union. Sorry if this is long. I just really wanted to mention the South Vietnamese men, women, and children who fled their homeland, Tara Snyder. Well, thank you, Tara. Uh, what a nice message to illustrate what soldiers were fighting for over there. To free people, many of whom clearly did not want to live in a communist regime. And like uh, like one of the veterans we mentioned here today spoke of, you know, to me that uh, makes makes the involvement in the war in the war definitely morally justifiable. Thanks to all of you who sent in your tales. Adds a great personal touch to the topic. You know that, that just reading history reports just can't do. Just just makes it so much more real. Uh, thanks to all of you who have served in that war or in any other. Sorry if your message did not get read. We were flooded with tons of Vietnam messages being sent our way this past week, which we're so thankful to have had that happen. That's all for today. And of course, hail Nimrod. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks for listening to another show, suckers. Appreciate the support. Have a great week. Hope you find a magical sort. If you do, I mean, it would be kind of nice to get it for me for my, you know, for my next birthday. May 17th, 2000. 
you know, 2020, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna beg for magic sword, but clearly my fucking family is not gonna give it to me. So, you know, just want you to think about that. And, uh, uh, I guess price, price keep on sucking as well. Can you please just give me a fucking sword that will kill everyone? Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.